All right. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Aid Radio. I hope you're doing very, very well. Five callers tonight. All excellent. The first was um, a guy who used to play in the location of the Orlando shooting. He's a bass player. used to play there. And we were talking about society's reaction to this shooting. Big picture stuff. Detailed stuff. Really, really important stuff to get a hold of and sink your brain around. And then we had a call from a single dad who has a daughter and is trying to figure out how he can raise his daughter well, given the toxic disaster, I think, as he phrased it, of his marriage. So we had a good conversation about red flags, warning signs, and how much we need for people to watch our backs when we are engaged in entering into romantic relationships. The third was a very deep and powerful conversation about arguing with leftists. And we went very deep into some of the base of the brain lizard responses that happen when you argue with leftists. I hope you'll give that a good old listen. The fourth caller was a British fellow who worked uh, as an administrator in the European Union and kind of lifted the lid on what it was like inside. And the fifth caller wanted to know why every generation disparages or seems to disparage the one that comes afterwards. And we talked quite a bit about that. It's a great, great show. Thanks everyone so much for calling in, for listening, for watching, for supporting, for sharing what it is that we do. Freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. Really, really need your support. Like, subscribe, share, of course, everything that you can get your hands on uh, that we do that you like. You can follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. And don't forget to use our Amazon affiliate link. No cost to you. Bit of... uh, Bakshish for us, and you can find that at fdrurl.com slash Amazon. Hey, if you do a lot of shopping, you can just leave it as one of your tabs uh, in your browser. So thanks, everyone, so much. Here we go. All right. Well, up first today, we have Todd. Todd wrote in and said, I'm an Orlando native and resident. I used to play music in the Pulse nightclub before it became the Pulse nightclub, and I know people who lost friends in the terrible terrorist attack. I'm noticing some pushback on Facebook by those who will not acknowledge the link between the attack and Islam. I'm frustrated by this. As a gun owner, some of my peers are even pushing for assault weapons bans and gun control. Why is there pushback when I talk about the radical Islam connection to this horrible crime? That's from Todd. Well, hey, Todd. How you doing? I'm doing well. And how are you today, Steph? I'm all right. So it, it is a weird thing when you see something in the news that you have a kind of personal connection to, it's kind of like, I mean, shit gets real, right? I mean, if you've got lots of uh, history there. Yeah, it's uh, it was very startling. Um, you never think that something like that's going to happen in your town. So tragic. Um, I'm born and raised here. I went to high school not far from where that club is. And uh, as I mentioned to Mike, I'm, I'm a musician by hobby, um, and I've played for many years. And before that club became Pulse, it was um, a bar, restaurant place called Dante's, and they had jazz nights on Wednesday and Thursday, and I would sit in with, you know, some musician friends of mine, and had been in that building, you know, many times, and um, I was kind of shocked when they were talking about the numbers of 300 people, because I really didn't think you could fit 300 people in that smaller club. Gay gay people tend to be rather thin. (laughs) That's my only guess, but um, sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, so uh, I've been in there. Um, musicians that I work with actually have lost. There's a, a singer in town, and he he died in the shooting. He was killed there. And um, 
very sad. He was really, really talented. I personally hadn't played with him, but people that I know have. And they all spoke very highly of him. And, uh, you know, videos I've seen of him singing was excellent. And so it's a real shame um, to get, I guess, dialed in more to the focus of my question, which I don't mind elaborating further on other things, but I'm a little nervous. I kind of just like try to hold on and stay focused here. Um, right. So, yeah, basically, I've noticed with a lot of the friends that I have in conversation or Facebook. A lot of people are jumping on gun control. They're like, just, it's, I'm a little surprised by it with how obvious the radical Islam connection is. And, you know, if I mentioned, you know, maybe the trips to Saudi Arabia and the, uh, you know, swearing, uh, you know, to ISIS would be a clue that this is something uh, that should take precedent over, over the gun control. Right, right. Is there more you wanted? I mean, I've obviously got some thoughts. Is there more that you wanted to mention? Um, it's just that, you know, it's a really a really sad time down here. Again, a lot of people were affected. Um, I've noticed a little bit um, amongst the conspiracy crowd, people saying, like, this is a false flag. And, and it's annoying because this is absolutely real. Absolutely real. And um, Yeah, no, I, it gets I get frust- that. It's frustrating to see that because, you know, I actually do believe that Government false flags have happened in the past, whether you're talking yep. about Gulf of Tonkin or, you know, th- these things, they do happen, psychological operations. This is not one. But they, they tend to happen very far away when the government controls the news and the narrative, not in the country where, you know, if, if the government says, uh, you know, with the go- oh, they fired on us first. Yeah. Well, who the hell's going right? to, who knows, right? They, they can control that narrative. Nobody the hell's out there with cell phone cameras, right? I mean, back in the 60s. Right, but when there's people in the you know in the community that the loved ones are missing, that I mean, this idea that yeah, it's all the fault. I mean, that's too too much, right? And 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 can't exactly help with the grief. Yeah, exactly, and it's annoying. And you know, there there were some. I'm I'm always open minded to certain bits of that because I don't know, I'm a realist, and they've done it before. But you know, my only bit of questioning with this was, I will say. I'm not sure if you are aware of this, but when the local police chief was involved, OPD, when they were the ones on the scene and basically wrapped everything up there until about 11.30 a.m. when the FBI took over, there was a big difference in the, in the story, actually. I don't know if people caught this, but there's interviews where he gave talking about this. So until about 11 a.m., the Orlando police was in charge of the investigation, and they had put out many reports saying 20 victims 42 injured and then right when the fbi took over around lunchtime on sunday that shot up to 50 you know 50 dead 50 injured and i was a little bit questioning about that and it seemed like that you know like when i told you about the 300 people in there it was a little surprising to me obviously i'm not in any any position to to doubt that at this time but i was it kind of perked my eyebrow up a little bit Plus, of course, if it's a disco, they don't need space for the live band, right? So that's more people that they can yeah, get in. Yeah, exactly. Yep. No, that makes sense. They need space for the DJ, but after that seems to be sort of like a British telephone booth from back in the day. So, <laughs> Right, right. So um, anyway, the musicians that you know, I know, some of them are pushing gun control big time. They're, they're linking things. And you know, it's sad because a lot of them know nothing about guns. A lot of them will say things like, automatic weapons should be illegal. I can't believe that. You know, 
this guy has. They are illegal. I know. I know. They are illegal. I'm countering with that argument all the time, and you know, no one responds. And basically, look, you know, you mean semi-automatic. I, I get that, but you realize that even a revolver is semi-automatic, right? Like we're not machine guns are illegal, etc. But and when I've brought up the Islam connection, which to me is blatantly obvious in this case. They push back and say, oh, you know, be careful about judging, you know, saying anything bad about it. It sounds racist. Not that you are, but, you know, just be careful with these comments. Yeah, no, they, um, they're wrong. I mean, obviously, Islam is not a race. Yeah. No. And so r- racism is just shut up. You're making me anxious. Stop talking. Uh, people say it a criticism with illegal immigration as if all illegal immigrants are one race. Come on. Right. Come on. I mean, it's it's ludicrous, right? Uh, and there are um, Muslims of, of every stripe and, and color. And this, you know, be careful. Just be, be careful. This sensitivity, this concern trolls. They're very claustrophobic to me. And uh, I can't imagine them, any of these people were raised with a strong masculine presence in the house. But that could just be my particular perspective. No, I think that, yeah, I think that's probably accurate. And, you know, you, you were talking about the, um, the imam's comments, actually. I'm trying to think of his name, Farouk Saklashvar or something like that. Uh, it doesn't matter. doesn't well, matter. And, uh, <laughs> something, something that's unpronounceable for me anyway. Right. Uh, and uh, our, our local news channel was the one that put out that interview, and it was really controversial. It was a couple months ago, or in late April, I think, so maybe less than that. And I've linked that, and the few people that did see it were like, wow, because he's blatantly calling for violence against gays. And, you know, when I show a couple of people that, they will have, will recognize, wow, this is a really big deal. It, it absolutely is radical Islam in this case. And, um, yeah, but it's just a lot of pushback with it. Uh, and But people don't know. Sorry to interrupt, ma'am, but people just say, well, it's got nothing to do with Islam. Do they know anything about Islam? Have they read anything about Islam? Has they studied anything about Islam? They don't have a clue, for the most part. Yeah. Right? There's a saying on the internet, Islamophobe. An Islamophobe is someone who knows more about Islam than he's supposed to, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, Dr. Bill Warner, there's people you can look um, uh, on on uh, YouTube. There's people who've, who've boiled it down and distilled it. I won't get into it all here because you can go look it up for yourself. But there's very easy ways to get into understanding Islam. And again, I know that's a big blob. It's like saying Christianity, and and there are moderates, and there are more extremist elements, and so on. But if you just look at the text, right, the the people say radical Islam. Radical Islam, to my way of thinking, I think there's a good case to be made for this, is fidelity to the text. So it's really consistent with the texts, right? And, And look, I mean, there are lots of people who are not consistent with the texts, and Good, and and that's true of Christians as to Jews and right. But so you just ask people, what do you know about Islam? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're supposed to be multicultural, right? We're supposed to to take fascination and pleasure in other people's cultures and belief systems. So what you can do is um, just ask people, well, what do you know about Islam? And I can guarantee you, <laughs> most people don't really know much about it at all. Yep. Which is why they call it a race. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, th- that's how little they know. They think it's it's biological or <laughs> something, you know? Like, well, and, and that's actually kind of racist. Because if you say Islam is a race, you're saying, well, what? People from the Middle East are all Islamic? No, they're not. 
Uh, are, is no one who's not from the Middle East Islamic uh, um, a Muslim? Of course they are, right? So they're saying, well, everyone from the Middle East is a Muslim. And therefore, if you dislike Islam, you're racist. Well, that's actually racist because there's a multiplicity of beliefs in the Middle East. And there's, of course, Muslims from every stripe and hue and and all of that. So they're actually being racist. Like say, all white people are Christians. It's like, well, it's kind of racist, you know? So um, yeah. just, you know, just, just ask them, do you, I mean, do, do they know? what they're talking about. And political correctness generally is just ignorance plus fear. It's, it's, it's a superstitious thing. You know, like when, when the savages were, um, the, the, all of us, right, way back in the day, when there was a thunder and lightning, nobody knew what was going on. So there was superstition plus fear. Uh, um, ignorance plus fear produced the kind of superstition of, oh, it's the thunder gods or whatever. And uh, this is political correctness as a whole. It's ignorance plus fear. And when you look at people's responses to a wide variety of issues, which politically correct people are all always up in arms about, um, it's always the same. They don't know what they're talking about, but they're vaguely afraid. Now, that's on the receiving end of political correctness. The delivery end of political correctness is ignorance plus rage. Uh, and uh, that uh, it, there's nothing that produces extremes of emotion more than ignorance because it's a very humiliating and powerless position. So you're either going to get inflicted upon or inflict upon others. So you can just ask people and say, okay, well, um, what do you know about, about Islam? And listen, <laughs> I will recommend to everyone um, – you have to learn about Islam. You have to learn about Islam because it is one of the most significant forces, if not the most significant force in the world today. What is a billion and a half people? And um, massive incursions and massive expansions like Muslim immigration into the United States has gone up tenfold recently. Oh, sorry, Muslim population gone up tenfold. I mean, there are 1.5 million recent migrants uh, into Germany, a lot of whom have, are Muslims. You need to study Islam. Yeah. You need to learn about it. You need to look it up. And, you know, there's a wide variety of sites where you can uh, get it from. And, and I, you know, people can just go, but go and look it up. And, and if you don't want to go, if you don't want to look it up, shut up. If you don't want to learn Get out of the conversation. If you don't want to study anything, then shut up. This is really, really important with people because, you know, intelligent people, uh, knowledgeable people are trying to have discussions about really grown-up important things involving the future of civilization. And if all people are bringing to the table is ignorance and fear, <laughs> then you need to get out of the conversation. This concern trolling just says, I'm dumb, but I'm nervous. And, and that's all that really – because it is dumb. It, it, it's not dumb to not know something about a topic, right? If you know nothing about a topic, you're not dumb. Right. I mean, there's tons of topics I know nothing about. But I don't put opinions out there, and I don't try and censor or alarm other people about talking about things I don't understand. You know, for a lot of people, when, when knowledgeable people are talking about a subject, you might as well be speaking – in Urdu or or in um, Japanese to, to not like they don't know what you're talking about, but they just feel a little nervous. Oh, stop, stop. Whatever you don't talk about. Right. And it's like, OK, well, so you're stupid. You don't know about anything. You're so stupid that you don't know what to look up or you've refused to, which is even worse. And you're so stupid that you think you have something to offer in a conversation where you don't have a clue about the topic. You know, and I say this, look. I was thinking, I can't remember why I was thinking about this. I did an interview a couple of years ago. Prax girl, P 
PRAX, practical. I don't know if they're still in business, but so I had to learn, and I'd read a little bit about it before, but I had to go and learn a lot about praxeology. Now, I could have a reasonably competent discussion about praxeology after spending a couple of days reading about it, but I ain't going to sit there and lecture Hans Hoppe about praxeology. Um, when I interview people, I ask them questions that I think are interesting and relevant, and they go from there because as an interviewer, I'm interviewing an expert. And so my knowledge is not very deep relative to the expert. So, you know, having the basic humility of knowing the things that you don't know is essential to not being a completely retarded, dangerous, stupid human being in the universe. Because the, the, the stupid people, they're like those fat cells that clog up your arteries. Just stupid. Look, if you don't know anything about Islam or you don't know anything about economics, fine. That's fine. If you don't know anything about epistemology or metaphysics or philosophy, fine. No problem. Then shut up. Go to the children's table. Uh, chew on your crackers and stop interrupting adults trying to have a conversation about something. So this – and concern trolls is just a great way of, of poisoning a discussion that needs to happen. Look – Islam is in the West. It's coming into the West and it's expanding into the West. So everybody who's got an IQ above, I don't know, pi, needs to learn about Islam so that you can have an informed discussion about Islam. And again, I've read some stuff by Bill Warner. I've read other people's stuff. Uh, obviously, can't read it in the original Arabic and <laughs> not going to try. But you need to learn about Islam. I remember reading books about Islam 12 years ago. Because, oh, I didn't read about this in the famous five when I was sort of growing up. So Islam is in the West. It's expanding in the West. Uh, it's coming to the West. And it's gaining more and more political influence in the West and cultural influence. So go and learn about it. Ignorance plus fear is going to clog the arteries of conversation, resulting in a heart attack of civilization. So when people give you this concern troll stuff, just, oh, okay, well, you must know. You know first of all, if you think it's a race, I'm a little confused, but perhaps you can tell me what you understand about Islam. And I can guarantee you they understand nothing. They know nothing. They have no idea of the principles. They have no idea of the history. They have no idea of the ethics. They have no idea of the purpose. They have no idea of the goals. Not one thing. Because, of course, you can't get any facts about Islam from the mainstream media. You can't get, like, any facts. You can get this concern trolling stuff, but you can't get any facts. And um, I hope it's not a radical thing to say, go and learn about Islam. You can do it in a couple of hours to get the basics. It's obviously a scratch-the-surface kind of thing, but learn about it. Because, you know, we have... Um, uh, I grew up in Christianity, so, you know, I know some stuff in Christianity just by, you know. But, you know, if it's got nothing to do with Islam fundamentally. If Rastafarianism was becoming a big force in the West, I'd say, okay, let's all kick off our flip-flops and learn about Rastafarianism. And, you know, nobody's saying you've got to become an Islamic scholar, but, you know, if you're going to have an opinion on a topic, a couple of hours of reading isn't going to do you uh, much, much harm. Uh, and, in fact, it, it's going to make you have the very, very beginnings of credibility. So this is just a call as a whole. Uh, go study it, go learn about it, go understand it as best you can. And, you know, again, I know it's a big topic and all of that, but you can. It's like most things. It's like uh, the, the law of diminishing returns. You get a huge amount of knowledge increase in just a couple of hours. And after that, it diminishes as you uh, go along. So, yeah. 
uh, that, that that's sort of important. So if people are just just ask them, okay, what do you know about about Islam? What are its central principles? What are its tenets? What's its history? What's its goals? What's you know what is it? Yeah. And uh, I guarantee you, people won't have a goddamn clue. And then you could just say, listen, it is highly, highly irresponsible to talk about things you don't have a clue about. So please, in the name of all that is holy, stop doing it. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And they do need to learn about it. I need to learn more myself. I mean, some of the stuff I threw out there as counterpoint would be, you know, in ten, if you're really concerned about gay rights, obviously, I mean, in 10 or 11 Muslim countries, you can actually be killed for it. And I think there's 75 countries where it's illegal. Most of them... Muslim nations, and you know. Well, and and of course the the people. Oh, the Christian, the Old Testament. It's like, yeah, I get that, but separation of church and state exactly. means that Christians can have strong opinions about ethics without uniting it to the power of the state. So where there's no separation of church and state, guess what? People's beliefs, if they're religious or otherwise, if there's no separation of church and state. Oh my God! <laughs> sorry, no, there's yeah. a spider in my studio. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I'm going to just find a nice little place. He just just dropped down. I'm like, why is there a dandelion fluff in my... I'm just going to hold that up to the camera so people can see it. There's a spider in my studio. I'm sorry, my friend. You are not going to get much to eat down here. So I'm going to put you in a nice little place over here and get you later. All right. No, Steph, that was a water buffalo. That's what that was. I know. I know. I should have kept that to Boom. find some... Uh, I just got bright. water buffalo first. I had to take the first one. So there we go. Um... What were you talking about? Well, um, about well, some of the counters I had thrown out there. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, if, if there's no separation of church and state, then people's beliefs really mean something. Now, in the West, it's been a long time since people have had a big mission. Right? A big mission. In the West, because big missions tend to be absorbed and subsumed into the ever-expanding thirst for power of the, the secular state, people's big missions are all state government giant clusterfuck programs right we're going to end poverty end illiteracy we're going to educate everyone we're going to get rid of drugs we're going to control alcohol we're going to like all the stuff that that people have had as their big missions they've all turned over to the state they've all turned over to the state and um so in in the west outside of, you know, crazy communists uh, decades ago, there's not been a lot of people who've had a big world mission, something they're willing to sacrifice for, something they're willing to defer gratification for, something they're willing to to really fight for. And I, I don't just mean physically, I mean just like really dedicated themselves to. And so it's really, it's hard for people in the West who've got kind of lazy and hedonistic, selfish. You know, there's no bigger goal. There's no bigger plan. You know, the, 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 we have freedom in the West because people people fought and died for it. And now we're like, well, we don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. You got to be careful. Careful. <laughs> Excellent. So, you know, outside of capitalism versus communism, the West versus the Soviet Union, individualism versus collectivism and so on. Well, what are big, people's big missions? Well, in a decadent society, people's big mission, if you want to call it that, Boils down to, can I get five more minutes apiece? Can I get five more minutes of deferring anything unpleasant? And so the question with regards to, to Islam, of course, on the, um, on the left, the, the narrative is that uh, Muslims are going to come into the West and they're going to integrate well and they're going to be great uh, and they're going to contribute to their society and, and so on. 
And don't don't get me wrong, <laughs> that can happen, and it does happen with certain groups, and it does happen with certain individuals. It doesn't happen with everyone. And, of course, the spread of Islam has been one decidedly of not integrating historically. And so um, on, on the left, they say, oh, yeah, no, no, no problem. You know, the, the gay club can sit right next to the mosque and they're going to exchange recipes over the fence and everyone's going to be uh, hunky-dory. And um, this, of course, is ridiculous um, coming from the left, right? I mean, it's simply because the left um, has no interest in diversity. The left has no interest whatsoever in um, coexisting with alternative worldviews, which is why when the left... Um, moves into um, any institution, they immediately make it, they immediately work to try and make it all left, right? They take over, they come in, they push out anyone who's conservative, they push out everyone who's not a squishy-bishy multicult leftist. Um, and, and so, you know, the fact that they have some something in common with Islam <laughs> or certain forms of Islam, well, uh, they both, you know, certain radical Islam on the left, they go into institutions and they push out everyone else and they make it a monomania of particular viewpoints, right? And so, of course, the, the left can't fight Islam, radical Islam, because it's similar methodologies. And so, like, there was a study done recently about um, the degree to which anyone who's a conservative just gets pushed out of academia. And they did a study... It's off the top of my head, but these numbers are very, very close. I and mean, they might actually be totally right. But they did a study of sociologists. And there were um, they studied uh, thousands and thousands of these uh, sociologists and, and interviewed them about their particular <sighs> political beliefs. And um, they found six conservatives. Six conservatives. So the idea that the left, and the left doesn't sit there and say, oh my goodness, that's crazy. We don't have enough conservatives in, the, uh, in academia. We don't have enough conservatives. That's not the kind of diversity they're looking for. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the diversity is we welcome everyone who votes for the left. <laughs> it, that's all. They're, they're, there's no interest in diversity whatsoever. And so when the left talks about diversity, they're just saying, well, we want people that we can use to bludgeon um, people on the right. Uh, and we want people who are going to vote for us. It's nothing to do with diversity whatsoever. Um, so I think that's a really, really important thing to uh, to understand. Yeah. There is an iron law of institutions, and it goes something like this. Every institution that is not specifically right-wing will eventually become left-wing. Every institution that is not specifically right-wing will eventually become left-wing. Because left-wing people want to stay as far away from the market as possible, so they want to create all these pockets where they don't have to deal with the market. And um, we can see this from the left-wing media is, is cratering. The left-wing media is com like, unbelievably cratering because now there's a market of people like uh, myself and, and uh, people like uh, Mike Cernovich, Milo Yiannopoulos, Vox Day, and, and a whole host of other people who um, – and Roger Stone and so on. Uh, and there are Roger all of these Stone people yeah. who um, – yeah, we just re recorded a great show today. Yeah, I read his book on so, the Clintons after you recommended it. It was awesome. Yeah, it's a great. So this um, now now that they actually have to uh, compete with with people and they don't have a monopoly of you know there are four television stations and a couple of dozen uh, newspapers. Now that they actually have to compete with people in the free market and not having uh, a, a bit of it, um, I'll give you a couple of numbers here. This is. Um, from two days ago, so 13th of June, 2016. So here we have a Gallup poll. And um, 
Uh, confidence in newspapers has hit an all-time low in the latest Gallup survey. And TV news is also at a new low. The latest proof that Americans are losing faith in the media. Well, fair enough, right? So Gallup found that just 20% of Americans have confidence in newspapers, a 10-point drop in 10 years. TV news saw an identical 10-point drop from 31% to 21%. And this is really, I mean, uh, it's a big deal. It's a big deal as a whole. This is what I mean when I say we are at the end of a particular worldview. And I'll just I'll give you some numbers because this is really important. This is from June 2006 to June 2016. Congress from 19% to 9%. Big business remains stable. Newspapers from 30% confidence down to 20%. Television news, 31 to 21. Criminal justice system, 25 to 23 well, at least until people find out more about Marilyn Mosby. Organized labor went down. Banks, well, of course, biggest drop of all, from 49% to 27%. Hey, good job with the bailout. Uh, and uh, public schools went from 37% to 30%. Less than a third of people have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in public schools. U.S. Supreme Court went down four points from 40 to 36 Presidency, sorry, the presidency went up from 33 to 36. Um, I assume that's because there are a bunch of leftists and we got out of Bush and into uh, Obama. Medical system went up a tiny, tiny bit. Church organized religion went from 52 to 41%. The police went down from 58 to 56%. And the military stayed stable at 73%. So what that means is that just about all of the major institutions in America are crumbling in terms of public support and public trust. And um, that is very, very different. And, of course, I think one of the main reasons for that is that media lies are now being unpacked in real time. Because of the Internet, you can now, like, the media will say something, and then six million people who have, like, a rather large amount of time on their hands. Good, good, and I'm glad that they do. But six million people go into and start unpacking the story and start looking up court documents and start investigating and start doing background, deep background checks and all that kind of stuff. And so the media is facing very public and very charismatic um, fact checkers. Like, I mean, the untruth about Donald Trump, uh, the very first presentation, you know, podcast plus um, videos, you know, done a million, million and a half views and downloads. So that's a million, million and a half people who get that the media is lying like crazy about Donald Trump. And then they share that information and then they pass it along to other people. The ripple effect is huge. I mean, that's just a drop in the bucket. That's just the start of the domino of the people who watch it directly. Because then they go and talk to people and they can rebut people on Facebook and they can, they don't have to link to it. They can just point out the facts. So the fact that the, the lies of the media putting forward are being deconstructed in real time, good Lord, half of Twitter, at least, you know, the Twitter that I look at, half of Twitter just seems to be like, well, this was bullshit, well, this was bullshit, well, this was a complete lie, and this was false, and this is... And so the media just, I don't think they know what to do with it, and I think that they're so stuck in that deep groove of sociopathic lying that I just don't think they have any idea, idea what to do with people who are disassembling this nonsense. Yeah. Um, uh, to, and the other thing, too... Um, is because the media is no longer in control of the narrative. Um, so two, two gunmen in, in Israel, two gunmen killed four Israelis. So the military is deploying two additional battalions to the West Bank 
This was June 10th, 2016. This is on Wall Street Journal. Israel revoked 83,000 travel permits allowing Palestinians to enter the country and said it would send two more army battalions to the occupied West Bank a day after a Palestinian shooting spree killed four Israelis. They revoked 83,000 travel permits. Now, where's the media? Because Trump says, oh, we've got to figure out what's going on with Muslim immigration, like immigration of Muslims from countries that sponsor this sort of terrorism. Everyone goes insane. But Israel revokes 83,000 travel permits because of two, uh, because four people killed. Is it mentioned? Does anyone scream at them that they're racists and, and whatever, right? I mean, you've got lunatics like Paul Ryan talking about, well, the, 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 there should not be a religious test for immigration and talking about the constitutional rights. It's like, they're not citizens. How on earth does the constitution apply to people just wanting to get in? That's like saying that the fire code applies to the people outside, uh, down the street, on the other side of town. I mean, madness. We, we can't have a religious test. What? Of course you can have any test you want. Any test you want, because if you're not an American, you're not covered by the Constitution. Like, I can't believe this, the stuff that people get away with. Obama just uh, recently uh, banned all immigration from Venezuela. All of it. Is that racist? Well, I guess if Islam can be a race, so can Venezuela. Hey, everything's a race. So, uh, <laughs> But yeah, the, so the fact that the media is is full of nonsense and it's regularly being exposed is important. And this is part of their desperation. Now, the last thing that I'll say with regards to, to all of this stuff is this. So you remember Dylan Roof? Yeah. Mr. Mr. Bullcut. Um so when Dylan Roof shot the church, shot up the blacks in the church, what did people say? They said, white nationalism, Confederate flag. Mm -hmm. This is emblematic of, of, of white nationalism, white racism, white power structures, white privilege, white this, white this, white this, white this. Of course not. Of course it had nothing to do with it, right? And... The other thing was that um, one of the things that Dylan Roof was really angry about was the degree to which the media had lied about Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman. So if he was really angry about that, wouldn't we say that the shooting was more motivated by media falsehoods than any kind of white supremacist blah, blah, blah? So when you, when you saw the headlines of, of Dylan Roof, White nationalism, white nationalist ideology, Confederate flag, white racism, and so on, right? So even though he didn't talk a whole lot about any of this stuff, it just and, – and then it become all whites, right? Now, when Mateen, this – the Omar Mateen, this, this terrorist, when he says that, you know, when he studies uh, at, at a mosque and he talks about, about stuff like this, then what happens is the, the, the media – Oh, it's a lone wolf terrorist. Oh, it's nothing to do with Islam and so on, right? So even though Dylan Roof, you know, <laughs> okay, you could say that Dylan Roof, maybe he was a white nationalist, but how on earth does that become like white people's problems as a whole? That's a specific ideology for a particular white person. But then when this person is part of uh, uh, an Islamic group, oh, he's just unstable and emotional trouble and emotional trauma and so on, right? And they say, well, he was crazy and evil and his ideology was just the, the the expression of his mental illness. 
Whereas with Dylan Roof, the ideology drove the evil, defined the evil, and is shared by so many other people. And this is, um, it's tough, you know, I mean, it's tough for the left when one protected class guns down another protected class. That is a big challenge, and it is quite fascinating to watch the cognitive dissonance and the degree to which they're just, you know, blaming Christians and blaming whites and blaming guns. And it's like, well, what about the um, the jihadist in, in uh, outside of Paris who right. stabbed some chief of police and then went inside and hunted down the guy's wife and slit her throat and then was debating about what to do about their kid, the three-year-old boy? Well, that was a knife. Knife control! Like, I mean, it, it's... It's crazy. Now, of course, the left wants people disarmed because the left wants to expand government power, and uh, it's tough to do that. Uh, and the, the left doesn't want people to be able to defend themselves because then it makes them dependent on the state, and it makes them feel helpless. And helplessness is how power expands, right? Power does not expand in the face of, face of firm resolution. That's what contains it. Power expands in the face of apathy and cynicism and frivolity and uh, helplessness. Oh, what can we write? That's what's going on in Europe. So, um, obviously, I mean, it doesn't need to be said, but I'll say it anyway. This guy is not emblematic of all Muslims. Of course not, right? I mean, absolutely not. But in the same way, Dylan Roof was not emblematic of all whites, but somehow the left made it about all whites. And now, uh, even though there are, um, what's it, about uh, 20,000 terrorist attacks uh, since uh, over the last decade and so on, and, uh, you know, if you count them up, there's not a lot of Amish. So um, that, is, um, that is a challenge. Now, there are things which are being talked about which I also don't particularly agree with. Like, oh, well, if you're on the no-fly list, well, you can't get a gun. Oh, it's, yeah, that's terrible because there's, you get put on there arbitrarily. There's no court. You don't there's no due decide. process. Exactly. And nobody there's no due process. And how do you get off? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Alex was talking. Alex Jones was talking about that. That's actually how I first found you, Steph, which was great. That uh, oh, yeah. he reached out and went onto that show because he has a large audience. And you know, when I started listening to you, you made so much sense, and you've helped me a lot, like just figuring things out in my own life. But I'm glad we we're able to talk about this today. Uh, speaking of one of the rebuttals that someone made when I brought up the Islam thing, they started comparing Christianity's treatment of gays to Islam's treatment of gays. And, uh, and like it was in the same category. Well, um, can they name – now, there's, I think Uganda is a Christian country, which there's punishments for, for gays. But um, Uganda is, um, well, not the highest IQ population in the known universe, to put it mildly. So in, in terms of, you know, Christian – countries and their treatment of gays versus, you know, uh, Islamic countries, you know, between 10 and 11, you'd be put to death for being gay, and a lot of people are. So in the Western countries, they're trying to figure out, well, gay marriage has become accepted, and and generally the law of the land in America, at least, and um, many other countries, of course, in the West. And um, the difference is that in the West, public public homophobia is social and professional death. And the in the West, there's a lot of sort of self-policing. I mean, it's gone too far in, in, in many circumstances. A lot of self-policing. A lot of self-policing. Like if you go out and you say terrible things about gays, well, people will say, gross, you know, like nothing to do with you. That's bad. And we like there's a lot of negative social repercussions about this. 
I will genuinely feel more hope for Islamic integration when I don't find out about an Islamic scholar who's talked about killing all gays out of compassion in Florida. I don't find that out after 49 gays have been gunned down. Exactly. You know how I find that out? I find that out because the Muslims are protesting the living hell out of this guy. And they're alerting the media. Do you know this crazy guy's out there talking about killing gays? That's horrible. That's not Islam. That's terrible. And we're going to protest and we're going to push back and we're going to do something peaceful and economic and boycott the mosque or boycott the imam or whoever. That's when I will start to feel a lot better. It doesn't come out because a Muslim killed more than four dozen gay people and wounded another 50. I find out about it before there's a shooting because the Muslim community goes crazy, just as a lot of Christians do when the Westboro Baptists hold up their signs against gays. I'll feel really great about it when the Muslims are policing the extremists, and that's how we find out about the extremists, and the Muslims will have nothing to do with them, and they will reject them, and they will boycott them, and they will alert the authorities, and they will do all of that. That's when I will feel a lot better. Yeah, I agree with that, absolutely. Um, They need to be doing that. They need to be doing that now. And maybe they did. I just, maybe I never heard about it. I mean, I just haven't seen a lot of I didn't see, like, when this guy was quoted as, as uh, there weren't a lot of protests. There weren't people, like, getting up and storming out of the room. There weren't people calling up right. and saying, this guy's talking about killing people. we got to do something. This is crazy. Yeah. This isn't terrible. Islam says, don't take lives and peace and religion of peace. And this guy's out there. Come on. I mean, come on, guys. Make us feel better. Help us out a little bit if you're not already. Maybe they can. Maybe they are. And it's all in Arabic. I don't know. But help us out a little bit. That's all I'm asking for. No, exactly. Because if we're going to self-police our crazy people, you have to as well. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, there's an article on Thor's right now that uh, Islamic speaker admits killing gays is a belief held by moderate Muslims. And it's a big interview there where he's asking people, you know, raise your hand if you agree with this, you know, stoning and this and that. And like everyone does. I mean, it's a room full of people. Obviously, not all Muslims are like that. Right? <laughs> but that's sort of like the idiot disclaimer you have to use. But um yeah, it's it's heavy, man. Right, right. Now, I mean, I get that um, if you, I mean, I wouldn't get, I, let me guess. If you're So if you're a Muslim and you're, you know, moderate, decent person, you want to raise your family, you want to do your job, you want to have a peaceful, nice life, and, and your faith is, is important to you and, and it makes you do good works, right? I mean, uh, forget about these bombings. I want to go around helping the poor and I want to pray and right. okay, you know, that's, no separation of church and state. I don't care what people believe fundamentally. I'll continue making the case for rational philosophy and secular ethics and all of that. But um, if you're a moderate Muslim, I guess my question is, you know, there are extremist elements in Islam. I, I don't think it's shocking to say that. extremist elements within Islam. Now, for the Muslims, the moderate Muslims, the, the Muslims for whom it is a philosophy rather than some uh, world-dominating ideology, right? Like, we've got to go out and create the worldwide caliphate and so on. It is a philosophy. It is a way that they approach the world. It is a way that they do good in the world. It's uh, right? So when they see the extremist elements and they don't do anything, right? And again, I'm just going by what the FBI director says and not really getting much cooperation from 
the Muslim community in terms of rooting out extremism. So either they either they are looking across at that and saying, well, you know, further than I would go, but I kind of agree with it. I don't actually believe that, but if, then then they're kind of colluding, right? On the other hand, they're saying, well, you know, those people are pretty crazy, and I don't want to kick that hornet's nest. Well, who who's who's going to know? Who else is going to know? So it, either it's collusion or it's fear. Now, if it's collusion, then then we have a big problem. And again, I don't think that it is for a lot of Muslims. Mm-hmm. But if it is real fear of of these crazies, because I mean, let's let's all remember. God knows it's horrible what happens in Israel and what happens in Europe and what happens in North America and so on. But the biggest victims of Muslim extremism are Muslims, right? Let's not take that completely out of the equation. I mean. <laughs> the it's sort of like a lot of Italians terrified of the mafia. Right? It's not because yeah. they love them; it's just they're scared. They don't want to end up in a cement shoes uh, with uh, fishes uh, somewhere. I can't remember. fish in a bed or horse's head in a fish, or I can't remember something like that. And so, but and so if they're cra- if they're frightened of of radical Islam, well, yeah. But then they should be like, okay, yes, let's put a pause on immigration until we can figure out how these people who terrify me could not be in the country. Because I think a lot of Muslims leave Islamic countries because they want it to be a philosophy. You know, if you've got, in some Islamic countries, you've got these um, enforcers, I can't remember what they're called, but the, the people like the, the, if they see a woman who's showing too much skin or they see someone like, boom, right, they'll beat you up, right? Now that's not that's not having a philosophy. That's kind of being in, a, in an open air prison, right? You got to do what they say because you don't want to get beaten up and so on. So a lot of people who wish to have, like Muslims and everyone, a lot of people who want to have their belief systems chosen, because you know, is it really virtue if you're just afraid of negative consequences so you just conform? I mean, I don't think that's. I wouldn't put that quite in the same category. Virtue is something that you choose and dedicate yourself to and all that kind of stuff. And so a lot of the people, I think, who are Muslims who want the belief system to be a philosophy that that moves them, they don't want that kind of government enforcement, state enforcement of, of the belief system. And so then, and I think this is where Donald Trump does get support from a lot of moderate Muslims who say, well, we're not huge fans of these guys either. And, and, and the number of I think the number of, of Muslims in the West who would be cheering this, like it's a tiny, tiny number. I mean, you know, I mean, it, so let, let's help them keep it as a philosophy rather than imposed by the state by finding some way to, to allow Muslims to come into Western countries who aren't going to be doing this kind of stuff. I don't know, again, no, that's kind of a magic wand and all of that. And I don't know how to answer that because I'm not in public policy or anything like that, but um uh, that uh, I think that's that's important. I, I don't think many Muslims want these kinds of people around uh, either, to put it mildly. No, I totally agree with that. And it seems like that should be more of a topic is how do we vet, you know, people better to come in. And about the Trump thing, you know, he got, you know, popular on many things, but with immigration. And then it was very controversial when he wanted to halt immigration from mu- Muslims temporarily. But now I just saw a Reuters poll earlier today where 50 percent of people agree with that now. After this, I mean, it's probably related to this tragedy, but um, yeah, fifty percent of people that were polled wanted to halt immigration from Muslim countries until we can figure out, you know, a better way to to do this. Right, and and the challenge, of course, is that it's like the second generation is often more radicalized than the first. 
And that is the big, big challenge. Um, yeah. I don't know how to answer that. I mean, I get, I don't, I don't have any clue. But the reality is that there are mil- millions of Muslims in Western countries, and we're going to have to find a way to get along. And this kind of stuff is not in the interests of of reasonable Muslims. It's certainly not in the interests of of anybody else. And we're going to have to find some way for us to all get along. And right now, the FBI in America has received over ten thousand tips of potential terrorist or troublesome or problematic activity of domestic terrorism. I think it's about 10,000, 10,000. Well, you know, as the old saying goes, if, you, if you're looking for a needle in a haystack, first thing you do is stop pouring more hay on it. And um, yeah, it's, it's perfectly fine for America to say, you know, as Ann Coulter says, we need a little me time, <laughs> we need a little us time, uh, fix our own problems and... Um, um, you know, I, I think I think that the Muslims in America, the Muslims in the West, who wish for their belief system to have the virtue of voluntarism, want to live in a society with a separation of church and state. Uh, I think it is more noble to follow a belief system without coercion, obviously. I mean, free will is, is essential to morality. Uh, and um, right now, uh, things are not looking super great in terms of uh, vetting processes, to put it mildly, right? I mean, uh, all three of the recent terrorist attackers in America were vetted and interviewed and didn't seem to work out that well. So clearly, we, we, the, the, the America has a system that's not working right now, yep. and it's not working for moderate Muslims any more than it's working for anyone else. And that pause to, to figure out you know, I, I honestly, I'm glad it's not my job to figure out how to make this work because I, you know, my government programs and all that, everyone knows my perspective on that. But um, that is something that needs to be dealt with. Right now, the immigration system is simply not working. What is it? Over 800,000 people have overstayed their visa in America. And basically, I don't think anyone knows where the hell anyone is. And... Um, I think it's also important for people in America to recognize that uh, immigrants in general, because as a welfare state, immigrants displace natives. So whatever America is, with a bunch of immigrants coming in, you get less America and more immigrants because of the wealth transfer involved in the welfare state. And and not just the welfare state, but everything else as well. And, um, you know, it's it's perfectly fair for America to say, listen, we have taken ridiculous amounts of immigration over the last 50 years, and society is really fracturing at the seams. We're in re- unbelievable amounts of debt. There are 90 million Americans not in the workforce. You have a crumbling infrastructure. We've got some serious problems to work out. And continuing to pile more immigration and more immigration and more immigration at a time when wages have not budged upwards for the last 18 years in America. And, and of course, endless immigration has a lot to do with that uh, for twofold. One, it depresses wages for the people who are working, immigrants who are working, and for the immigrants who aren't working, it raises taxes, which means that fewer people can be hired. It's very bad. It is perfectly, perfectly all right for America to say, let's take a break from this for the foreseeable future. They've done it before. Um, you know, they'll do it at this point. I know it's inconvenient to the Democrats who want more guaranteed voters without having to get off their lazy asses and make decent arguments, which they apparently have forgotten how to do because all they do now is, uh, Jimmy, they put their finger on the scale with immigrants. But um, it is, you know, I don't know why. Why is this so insane? I mean, why is this so crazy? I mean, it's not working right now. Uh, America has, um, if America is going to stay America, it needs time for people to 
acclimatize and to integrate to certain American values. That doesn't mean everyone has to believe the same thing or anything. Of course not, right? But you can be a Muslim who follows the teachings uh, of, of Islamic theology and is fine with the separation of church and state and can be a perfectly productive member of society. But um, the degree to which more and more beliefs come in from a particular group, they tend to harden and there tends to be a moat, particularly the welfare state. There's no economic integration. You get the no-go zones, all of this sort of mess. That is not working. That is not working anywhere because it's a government program. Immigration plus welfare are two government programs that coincide and detonate. And metaphorically, <laughs> I guess sometimes <laughs> not so metaphorically. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it's perfect. And the, the fact that people go insane about this is, well, of course, um, America is a captive at the moment that politicians can strip mine and sell to immigrants in return for votes. And yep. it's bad for the politicians. You know, this is why you don't have any great rhetoricians at the moment. This is why you don't have people giving the kind of speeches that give people goosebumps because they don't have to give good speeches. They can mumble core their way through any amounts of bullshit they want because they just got their fingers on the scale. They don't have to be uh, any good at what they do. Uh, it's lazy because – the really competent people don't want to go into politics because, I mean, when was the last time that Paul Ryan gave you a speech that had you jump up off the couch and say, yeah, you know, or get excited or give you goosebumps or anything like that? They don't have to do anything because it's all manipulation. So without immigration, um, politicians will actually have to start making really good, important cases to the American public. It will be for the betterment of all sorts of public discourse and um, – that's, I think, where a lot of Trump supporters coming from. All right, listen, I'm so sorry to end with a big speech, um, but I'm going to move no, on to the next one. caller, and I really, really appreciate uh, you calling. Yeah, um, thanks for having me, Steph. I can just uh, say for a moment, really love what you do. You and Mike are excellent. Uh, really appreciate being on the uh, on the show. And you are to philosophy what Freddie Mercury was to singing, my friend. My, oh, <laughs> my, oh, my, baritone, oh. my baritone brother. Over. Can I can I tell you this though, man? <laughs> Let me tell you something. <laughs> if I could have my philosophy brain or Freddie Mercury singing voice, I'm telling you, it would be a tough call. I just love once in my life be able to sing like that. But anyway, thank you. I appreciate that. It's very very kind, and um, I'm sure we can talk again. Take care. Okay. Up next, we have Roger. Roger wrote in and said, "What advice do you have for a single father with full custody of a single child?" I've recently woken up and realized the importance of a person being fully accountable for their actions and want to do everything possible to help my child and myself heal from a toxic marriage. That's from Roger. Do you mind? Um, I'm going to pretend that this is intellectual curiosity, and it is some of that, but I also kind of like gossip. Do you mind telling me a little bit about the toxic marriage? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, well, um, it has... Only recently, just um, we've become um, separated, <clears throat> and um, actually, she moved out in um, February sometime. Wait, wait, wait! Sorry, do you mind if we start from the "how did you meet" thing? Oh, okay, sorry. Oh, um, we no places. Yeah, okay, no places. Well, just I, I know I know Mike loves editing for for the rest of his natural born existence, but uh, just give me a generals. Sure. Um, well, I knew her for. A few years, um, just kind of vaguely, casually, because we are we are uh, frequenting the same message board uh, online for a while. And uh, um, at one point, I wanted to move across the country, and 
she sent me a message asking me to pick her up and take her with her. And, um, it's cause she wanted to move there too. And, um, just, um, Wait, you were friends, you were going to yeah, move across the country just, and she said, take me with you. Yeah. Just, I mean, I guess we we're kind of just, um, did she see you in a speedo like eight <laughs> minutes beforehand or something? Well, it turns, well since he looks like he's stuffing a beer can, I'm in. I mean, it turns out that, um, she, she probably wanted something to happen between us, but uh, I had, I had no intention of anything going on, but we instantly, Why? uh, I had more, I had other things on my mind, really. I was going to, um, start my career playing music or whatever. I, you know, I was wanted to, I was moving all the way across the country and I was thinking about that sort of stuff. And she was kind of just, uh, something that happened. And so I, I had an extra seat and I mean, we were already friends, uh, just, so I said, you know, why not? Um, but we instantly clicked and, um, we moved in together right away and ended up getting married, um, four months after that. Um, so it was pretty quick. And, um, did she, I mean, did she just fire the V cannon at you one night and you succumbed or what, what happened? Um, I mean, that's probably not too far off from the truth. Um, I was very, very inexperienced with relationships. Um, oh, you were? Was she more experienced with relationships? Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. So, no, wait, wait, hang on. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that sounds like, I that's, mean, oh, yeah, that's more than experience. That's like uh, well, friction burns. <laughs> I don't know if I'd, I'd go that far, but it just compared to me. I mean, I had only really had... Um, I mean, it's even a, a couple of like, or I guess three, just kind of halfway relationships that lasted a, a month or two or something, and just um, you know, I, I've been I've been friends with, I've always had really good girlfriends, but uh, you know, I just been really inexperienced in that romantic sort of side of things, and she just well, that had, usually means that, sorry that usually means that you're not sexually very assertive. Yeah. If you've got a lot of female friends, uh, uh, that usually is because they're not particularly concerned about you uh, coming onto them. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, All right. Yeah. Um. So, so um, is it that when you say that if you're not sexually very assertive, is that because you didn't find these women attractive, or you found them attractive but didn't want to or feel like acting on it? Um, the ones I was friends with, I generally didn't really find attractive enough to to be interested in that way i mean um i just kind of i like to i like the way that um girls would talk about stuff more than guys i guess or i like to have two sides of it you know i, I had my guy friends and the girl friends too but i just had like what i got out of those relationships without the complications of uh you know going farther with it and your sex drive what's that like um regular i'm 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 fine i don't like (laughs) have problems or uh i mean well i'm just wondering because if if you're friends with a lot of girls and you like them i'm just wondering why you wouldn't have made a move um i I don't know. I, I guess 
physical attraction might have played part of it. Um, but um, I think a lot of it was just not knowing what to do, really. I, was, I wasn't just kind of uh, always just very ignorant of that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, I still feel that way almost. So you were, sorry, I'm confused. So were you, you were attracted to these women, but you didn't uh, know what to do? I mean, I wasn't really like, I, I was, uh, I liked them as friends, you know, as like a good joke. I guess I was attracted to them, but I just didn't recognize it for what it was. But, um, not, I wasn't like, uh, falling over myself wanting to, you know, um, make out with them or whatever, you know, just something. And then, but then. Another girl will come along sometimes, and I would definitely be feeling the the. Uh, Sorry the, to interrupt. And and how do you feel that you are attractive to uh, the? Um, do you think you're attractive to women? Yeah. And how how, how would you uh, know that, or what do you think? Um, I think that I have um, a lot of good ideas and i'm no 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 sorry empirical evidence not what huh? you think in other words do women come onto you a lot or do they oh, um, um, drop pencils near you and uh, <laughs> wag their tails i mean what um sometimes i'll get uh women come on to me on i mean i don't go out a lot but um you know sometimes i'll i'll be approached um or just you know you sometimes you look across the room at someone but then I'm, I'm typically very quiet so i don't um I rarely, uh, you know, make make a first step or something like that. All right. So you um, moved uh, uh, out of town with this woman. You lived together, and a couple of months later, you were married. Yeah, four months. Um, and did you get any feedback from friends, relatives, mom, dad, anything like that about this uh, young woman? Um. Well, I kind of had just left my most of my life behind. I did. There was one friend who came up. No, just give me a yes or no, man. I, I oh, got to keep this moving. Okay. Sorry. Did you not get, did you not get uh, any feedback from your friends or relatives? I got some, yeah. They, they liked her. They liked her. Yeah. Okay. And, and they were wrong. Mm, yes. Okay. So why would your, was you, did you, your parents meet her before you got married? No, they met her at the wedding. They met her at the wedding? Why, why didn't you want your parents' feedback on the woman who was going to be their daughter-in-law? I, um, that's a good question. I, I, like I was saying, I, was trying, I felt like I was just kind of making a new life for myself. And I, I guess I just didn't, didn't need anybody. Uh, that's that sort of line of thinking. Well, okay. You see, I'm, and I'm trying to sort of point this out for you and for others, which is warning signs. Warning signs. Did your... Fiance, your girlfriend, your fiance, did she want to meet your parents? Did she say, well, you know, I'm going to meet in, I'm going to marry into a family. I got to get to know your parents. Oh, yeah. Um, well, she was excited to meet them the, the day of. But, uh, no, 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 no. Before, before. No, well, did she no, say, listen, no. I can't just go marry a no, guy because I'm marrying into a family. And I'm going to have, if I have kids with you, then they're going to be the grandparents and they're going to be around a lot. I've got to figure out how compatible I am. I've got to figure out where you came from. I've got to figure out whether our values are similar or not with the family that you came from and all that, right? Right. No, she didn't. She didn't do that. Okay. Why? Why didn't she do that? Why didn't she want 
to meet your family before you got married? My um, guess now is that she didn't think that they would like her. Okay. Right. Right. So she didn't think that they would like her. And so she decided to get married to you. Hoping what? Hoping that they would not talk to you about it, hoping that they would never meet her, hoping that they would never say anything, that she's going to go through the next 50 years or 40 years or however long your parents are going to live without that going on? Yeah, kind of like just, um, okay, we're married now and then that's it. You know, you can't, it was too late for the parents to disapprove, I guess, after you're already married. That is manipulative as all shit, I got to tell you, Roger. That is unbelievably manipulative and very risky. Right? Like if a woman wants to get married to you, doesn't want to get to know your friends, doesn't want to get to know your family, doesn't even meet them, run! I'm saying this, you know, I know you already got run over, but I'm just saying to others, run at that point. That is not, that is a person who's substituting kind of vicious cunning for basic emotional intelligence. You know, even a, even a car salesman will let you have a test drive, right? And why did your parents not say, wait a minute, you're getting married? We've never even met her? I don't think so. Um, yeah, well, they were very shocked, but they didn't, they didn't um, disapprove like that. <clears throat> why? How on earth could they? I'm sorry. Like, I'm just thinking I'm a dad, right? My daughter is going to grow up and get, get married going to get married to someone and that someone who I get married to who who my daughter is going to get married to I'm going to spend quite a lot of time with yeah that's how I feel right now I mean I I right so so when you said I'm marrying a woman you've never met did they say I don't think so and now not that they can order you oh you're an adult and all that but like no 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 no, not in a million years, right? Yeah. So they just kind of what rolled over and went with it. Um. Yeah, they just said, um, "All right, we're flying out," and then they flew out to the marriage. And then, you know, of course, everyone was happy that day. It's like you know, you're married. Everyone's happy, so there's good impressions all around. And, and anything you got to layer that much sugar and alcohol onto is usually not a very good thing. <laughs> you don't need a lot of sauce for the meat that tastes good already. It's the gamey stuff you got to put on, right? Okay, so I'm getting a picture here of a kind of passivity, right? Yes. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And so what that means is that you're like a leaf on the estrogen stream of her romantic or marital or sexual desires, right? Yes. Right, so your ex wanted you, and you kind of went along with that, and then she wanted to marry you, and you kind of went along with that, and your parents are like, okay, I guess we'll come along with that, and so on, right? So this not choosing, and this not being aware of, you know, I'm sure as we talk about this in hindsight, pretty obvious warning signs. Someone who loves you should want you to be close to the people who you love. This woman, your ex, didn't feel that was important. And what that means is that she didn't want you to be in close contact with people who loved you and, and, and cared for you and, and so on, right? Right. That's another warning sign. Just you and her, just you and her, just you and her, right? 
that kind of isolation is key for manipulation, right? It's much easier to manipulate people who are separated from people who love them, right? Because they don't get other people saying, well, wait a minute, that's not right, or something's not right, or giving you feedback, or writing you on the path, or whatever, right? So my guess is, with that particular situation in place, she knew you didn't have guardians around you. She knew you didn't have people who were going to keep you um, strong and who were going to help push back against any kind of manipulation. So my guess is she got pretty manipulative, if not downright crazy, after you got married, right? Yeah, pretty much uh, changed. It changed pretty quickly. And what was what went on that was so bad? Um. Um, she quit her job pretty quickly for just bad reasons, really just social reasons. And, um, and also started just kind of lying around the bed all day. And I, I slowly started or stopped going out because there would always be some sort of, uh, sorry, you, you stopped doing what? Well, I was going out to, you know, like the bar or something to play music or just, just to be with friends or something. Uh, but then I, I, I stopped doing that um, as she just kind of lay in bed more and uh, or just in the house. And um, was she was she depressed? Um, I, yeah, um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, yeah, she was. And why was she depressed? Do you know? Um, uh it's I, it's too complicated for me to really say. I don't know why. I mean, she had a terrible childhood, and um, you know, and I'm sure that didn't leave her with many tools to deal with uh, uh, life. So, right. Um, you know. And you, you knew? Did you know about her terrible childhood before you moved in together, or before you got married? Uh, vaguely. I I mean, I did know it was. She had her parents had divorced, and her she hadn't seen her father for a long time. And I met her mother and a couple times, and she she seemed okay. I mean, I, I didn't know her as as well as I should have, but there was definitely a lot of information I found out later that painted a more vivid picture of how bad it had been up until just about the point of meeting me. Um. But um, yeah. It, um, looking back on it, I would have definitely. <laughs> I'm. I would have um, gotten to know her more before I made a big commitment like that. Well, you knew her for a couple of years, but you didn't really know anything about her family or her childhood or whatever. Like I. I still, I still don't know what the hell people talk about all the time. You know, like I mean, you don't have to spend all your time talking about your childhood and history, but when you're young, it's kind of important because it's a lot of shaping who you are. And mm-hmm. um, my God, um, why, uh, why not know these things? But you didn't know these things. Okay, so how long did the marriage last? Um, four years. Wait. Yeah, well, four and a half. Right, right. And um, how uh, long after you got married did you have your child? 
Um, so it was well. Let me count here. It was a year and a half after year and so a half. Okay, year. Yeah. And are you um, on the hook for like alimony and that kind of stuff? No, um, I'm. I'm not. I'm no hooks right now. Yeah. Oh, all right. I don't know I how. Just, that's uh, often, my- if the woman quits working, it's because she's planning on. Uh, well, unconsciously yeah. or consciously planning on. Yeah. All right. Well, she quit two jobs before, and we. Uh, I probably should mention is we, before having our child and after getting pregnant, we moved back to the same town as my parents. Um, but my the level of isolation was still there. Right. Right. All right. And and how old is your son? His son, is it? Daughter. She's uh so, Yeah, she's 4. She's 4. And um How long was so she was in the marriage for 2 or 3 years? Um your daughter. Maybe my numbers are wrong. I guess it was a I'm sorry. I I'm sorry. It's a, I think it was a 5-year marriage then. Um, okay, that's been, fine. No, it's a couple of years. How did you end up with full custody? Um, it was, the crazy is in the wake of this the crazy event that it was the the spark, the ending, at all really. Um, but she took my wife took a vacation. To, or, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said the name. But it's fine. It's fine. She took a um, vacation. Took a vacation with. With my daughter, and I got to you know have a week long break. It was, was going to be great, and then she decided that she wanted to stay there with the to be with her friends and family over there, and um, she wanted me to move. And I was going to do it for a while, and it, eventually, um, after I came to my senses, you know, and um, I went. I went out there with my dad to go get our daughter, and um, we brought her back. And a few days after that, we were. I was a trial, or the court date was, and um, the, the um, since my wife or ex was still across the country, then they just awarded me everything. Hmm. All right. And does uh, does your ex does she have much to do with your daughter at the moment? Um, well, there's some more. There's a bit another element I should add is that she was she ended up being in a mental hospital out on the other side of the country. With um, she had a total breakdown out there, and then after me and my father brought the daughter back home, my ex eventually made her way back here and there was a period of a couple months where we are sort of we were living together but then she was gonna move out and then she ended up having another breakdown and went back to the hospital and uh, it, it ended up that um she decided to move all the way back across the country again because she couldn't take care of herself wow so she really uh, was a not able to function no um in any particular way. All right. Right. And it doesn't uh, seem that she's going to 
get that reintegrated anytime soon, right? Yeah, I mean, she's living with her mom and grandmother, and she has a job, and she wants to move back eventually, but it's just going to take a while. Right, okay. All right. I mean, oh, you, that was the question. You had that, how involved. Um, um, they FaceTime almost every day, at least once a day. And sometimes they'll send a, a present or something like that. Um, sometimes my, my ex will send a present. Or, so she tries to be stay connected. Right. Now, I'm going to guess that it's not um, a particularly juicy dating world for you at the moment, right? No. And, um, no, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I'm not even bothering right at the moment. It's just, it, even trying seems impossible. Right. It's hard to picture how you could have chose a worse mom for your kid, right? Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? Yeah, without being completely ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, other than, you know, demonic possession or whatever it is, right? Um, and I want you to understand this is not just something that was you, right? Like you're a young man and when you're a young man, the capacity to get dicknapped, right? Where you basically just, wow, someone fired the V cannon at me and I'm just pinned up against the wall and I've kind of lost free will because hormones and genetics and all that, right? So young men need a human shield for the V cannon, right? They, they need people around them to slap them in the dick and tell them to wise up because this is not a good situation, right? Because a lot of times sexuality for young men, for young men, it's kind of like quicksand, you know? Kind of looks just like regular old dirt on the ground. You step in, it's like, bloop, you're gone, baby. And then there's the rodents of unusual size. So... <laughs> You didn't have the moat, the human shield, the people around you to punch you in the groin and and tell you to snap out of it, right? Yeah. So I'm not saying this makes you have like a zero responsibility thing. You have responsibility in the matter. But I also think you've got some cause to be a little annoyed with some of the people around you. Yeah, I suppose so. That sounds like <laughs> I'm <laughs> trying to find any emotion we can connect on here, man. Uh, yeah, anything. No, no. I'm 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 casting my net. I'm throwing my net into a vent just to see if right. Yeah, that. I just. Um, that's very true. I just the thought is kind of a. Uh, it's just not the nicest thought, really. So, but it's true. Okay, so if you want your daughter to heal. You have to stop with nice or not nice thoughts. Right? I'll tell you, man, not nice thoughts, it's chick talk. I'm going to grossly generalize here in order your daughter can be different. But that's not a very nice thought. That is the soft censorship of estrogen paralysis. Right? Men... Guys, dudes, we're not supposed to care whether it's a nice thought or not. Is it true? Not, is it nice? 
Yeah. I'm so really- you have to start <laughs> about what is true rather than what is nice. Because when you worry about what is nice, you end up being dominated and beaten down and you live in a frilly fascistic universe where whoever gets upset controls your brain. Do you understand? Yeah, totally. You stand with the truth. And I'd love it if women did this as much as men, but we're just, you know, I'm talking to you right now. So we stand with the truth. Uh, Is it nice? Is it not nice? Who cares? If someone had said to you, Roger, this is not the woman for you. This is not the woman to get married to. This is not the woman to be the father of your child. Let me tell you why. She underfunctions. She had a terrible childhood. And what did you say about her mom, Roger? Ah, I met her mom. She seemed all right. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. A mom who is all right doesn't produce a girl who ends up in a mental institution. So stop whining with that nice stuff. What the hell? Nice is not nice. Nice is cowardly. Because if someone had been not nice to you, see, the nice thing to you, we want to get married to this girl. The nice thing is to say, oh, I'm happy for you. Oh, that's nice. Oh, we'll fly out. Oh, that's good. Oh, what a lovely wedding. Oh, that cake was delicious. Oh, that band sounds just lovely. Oh, I think you'll be very happy. She seems like a very sweet little young girl. You guys are going to be great. And they say, well, we're thinking of having a baby. Oh, I think that would be lovely. Babies smell like talcum powder, and that makes me smile. That's all nice stuff, right? How helpful was everyone being nice to you? It wasn't helping. It was not helping. Nice is not helpful. Nice is not nice. Nice is fear. Nice is conformity. Nice is sweeping everything under the rug, pushing everything down. Nice is denying facts. And nice is not being loving. You know, people say, well, it's tough love, like there's any other kind. There's no other kind of love than tough love. Because when we withhold the truth from people we love, We're saying, I don't love you. Because either I don't want to tell you the truth because it makes me feel anxious, in which case my anxiety is more important than your happiness, in which case I don't love you. Or I don't think you can handle the truth, which means I secretly have complete contempt for you. View you as a fragile flower who's kind of mentally crazy and can't look out the window because if it suns out, it's going to burn your retinas. So either I'm putting my anxiety above your happiness, which can't be love, or I think you're too fragile to handle the truth, which means I've got to tiptoe and lie around you all the time, and that ain't love either. Love is direct truth as you see it, with reason and with evidence, because that is actually being nice. That is actually being helpful. If you're sick, you go to a doctor, and the doctor says you're fine, he's being nice. You just might die. If you're really sick, you want the doctor to say, hey, you're kind of sick. You got to take this medicine. You got to do X. You got to do Y. If you go into the doctor and you're 250 pounds, five foot 10, and it ain't all muscle, do you want your doctor to say, looking good? <laughs> maybe, maybe a little extra weight. You're a little too lean there. 
No, you want him to say, sorry, fatty, you got you to gotta lose it. You got to lose it. It's not good for you. It's not healthy. You want people to tell you the truth. Let me guess. Mom wears the pants. Um, uh, not all the time. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, really. Well, the, the emotional pants, which is, I mean, they're powerful. Yeah, so mom doesn't like things that aren't nice, right? Uh, that's true, yeah, definitely. Yeah, okay, so mom doesn't like things that aren't nice. So you end up with the mother of your child in a mental institution because mom likes things that are just nice. Not helpful. And I'm saying to you all of this because I want you to break that cycle, Roger. We grit our teeth. We look at the facts. It is not helpful to have people around you who are more concerned about conflict avoidance than actually helping you. Yeah, I feel my like, daughter says. Um, my daughter says, "Oh yeah, I met this met this guy. We're going to get married in a couple of months. He doesn't want to meet you." Oh, oh, let me tell you, that would not. I would not be nice. Which means I'd actually be helpful. It's interesting. The only um, time in recent memory that I can remember um, my parents or in and my my boss actually too. They're they're. Not nice to me recently. Whenever this situation was happening with the people on the other side of the country and stuff, it really uh, kind of slapped me in the face and made me realize what was actually going on. And um, yeah, I, just, I can't. I can't remember the last time before that that my my dad was um, talking to me in that way in that um, not nice sort of way. Yeah, and this niceness, I mean, it's the reason I'm quite passionate about it is I care about you and, and your daughter. But, but it's a big issue, too. I mean, this political correctness, let's be nice. Let's not bring up anything uncomfortable. Let's not get any facts that might make it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Was this the pinnacle of our civilization? To become such snowflakes that the merest sunlight causes us to vaporize? To become vampires to the sun of truth? This is what all our ancestors worked so hard for? Was that we could just dance around each other with frilly nothingness and talk about the weather and sports and nothing that's ever going to upset anyone? Oh, man. If they saw what we did with their sacrifices, they would come back from the dead with Aragorn at their head and take us down like an orc army. But anyway. Um, so, yeah, if you want to heal, I mean, look, people, people in your life are supposed to have your back. People who love you are supposed to have your back. We're a team. We're a squad. In a harsh world, people are supposed to have your back. There are mean people out there. There are violent people out there, manipulative people out there, lazy people, predatory people, parasitical people. There are people out there. And we're all going through like back-to-back uh, -back swords out, <laughs> going through uh, Mordor, and we got to watch each other's back. And if people don't watch your back... They're partly responsible for what happens. That's the whole point of love. Love means shared responsibility. If I love you, Roger, and I stand by 
where a bad, I, I stand by and don't stop you from making a bad decision. I'm complicit in the results of that decision. Let me, let me give you an example. What's your favorite soup? Tomato. Tomato soup. Okay. I'm going to assume you don't like tomato soup with eyeball. No. Now, let's say you and I sit across from each other in a restaurant, and you're chatting with me, and you're so focused on what you're saying to me, you're just eating soup, you know, like that machine eating that bachelors do. Must refuel. I will refuel in flight <laughs> if I can, right? Just all that kind of just I – need, I need calories so that I can go on with bachelor stuff. <laughs> yeah. And so your, your machine conveyor belting, you're escalating up the food to your mouth, and up to your mouth is a spoon of tomato soup with an eyeball. What am I going to do? You say, hey, man, there's an eyeball in your soup. Well, I know. I'm actually going to slap it out of your hand. Oh. Because <laughs> I don't want you to be like, I, I'm, I don't want you to take a bite and say, I'm sorry, what? Oh, yeah. Like, it's like, boom! It's going to fly across the room. Sorry if it might land in someone else's soup, but I'll tell them too. But my goal is don't eat the eyeball. My friend Roger should not ingest an eyeball. That's, that's, that's my three-second plan for the next three minutes. No eyeball in Roger's mouth, right? Now, if I don't say anything because I don't want to startle you or I say, well, I didn't want to interrupt you, so I thought I'd let you eat that eyeball. Am I kind of complicit in you ending up with an eyeball in your mouth? Yeah. Yeah, because I saw the eyeball. You didn't. So it's my job to make sure that eyeball doesn't end up in your mouth or cockroach or whatever, right? Peeling some big old Harry Belafonte banana pack and in there is a tarantula and I don't say anything because, well, you were right in the middle of saying something. So So the people who can see stuff that you can't are kind of complicit in what happens after. So I want your daughter to grow up knowing that you have her back, which means to hell with nice. I just want the facts. Because you're going to be tempted. And you listen, you listen back to this call, you've done it a dozen times, at least. Where you can say, I would, what are you going to say about the mother of your child to your child? You don't have to tell me now. But your great temptation is going to be nice, to be nice, right? Well, you know, she tried her best. She did the best she could with the knowledge she had. She had this problem. She had that problem. She did have a bad childhood, but, you know, we tried our best and we worked and we tried to work it out. It did, right? You're going to be really tempted to be nice, right? Right. And what that's going to give, oh, and, and also it just happened, right? There's no way to see it ahead of time. And what that's going to, give your daughter, I'm guessing, is this sense of like, well, with the very best of intentions, absolute disaster can result. We loved each other. She, we really tried. We tried to work it out. We did this. We did that. But next thing you know, blah, 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 right? 
which is sort of like anytime you go outside, even if it's a clear blue sky, sunny day, you can get hit by lightning. Right? So when we take the course out of things, which is what being nice is, we take the course out of things, the dominoes, and boom, got hit by lightning. Now, if you say, well, here I was, I made really bad decisions, and the people around me didn't look out for me, they didn't tell me the truth, they were just all being nice and, and facilitating and accommodating and pleasant and all that kind of stuff. And so I ended up making some really bad decisions, and... Um, I compounded those decisions and things got worse. And then this, ha- like, if you give her the, the facts and the truth, then she's going to say, okay, well, if we, if we ended up in this situation and these dominoes preceded it, then if I avoid toppling over those dominoes, I'm not likely to end up in this situation. But when you're nice, when you forgive yourself, when you forgive others, when you forgive your ex-wife, when you forgive the people around you and everything gets whitewashed, then there's this paranoia of terrible things can happen even with everyone having the very best of intentions, you're never safe. If you say, well, you know, here's what I did. I climbed on the top of a church with a giant umbrella in the middle of a lightning storm. Next thing you know, I got hit with lightning. Well, you tell that story so your kids don't climb on the top of a church with a big old umbrella reaching up to the sky in the middle of a thunderstorm. Say, well, if I don't do that, I'm pretty much not going to get hit by lightning. So if you say, well, I did these things, that's how I ended up getting hit by lightning, as opposed to, well, there I was in the basement watching TV. It was a beautiful sunny day. Boom, lightning right through the window. Well, that makes people kind of paranoid about lightning, right? Because no steps you can take to avoid it. It could just happen anywhere. So if you want her to feel a sense of security when it comes to making good decisions about her life... then you need to unpack for her the decisions that could have been avoided so that she can avoid them and understand that having her mom in a mental institution didn't just happen. But there were a whole series of decisions and steps that could have been made better and differently that you're partly responsible for and your family's partly responsible for and her family's partly responsible for and she's partly responsible for. People made a whole bunch of bad decisions and avoided a whole bunch of stuff by trying to be too nice and this was the result. Then she's going to feel, okay, well, lightning doesn't just hit you while you're sitting in the basement on a sunny day. Does that make sense? Yes, definitely. Um, Good. Then I'll try and quit while I'm ahead and move on to the next caller. (laughs) But uh, I hope it works out. Thank you so much for calling. It's a very, very important question. And uh, this is, you know, back to you, person being fully accountable. Don't take it all yourself. You're part of a community, which means the community is partly responsible for what happens to you. That's the point of a community. So. Thanks, Roger, and let us know how Thank it's you. going, all right? Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay, up next is Anson. Anson wrote in and said, When discussing political issues such as the economy and illegal immigration with leftists, I frequently get confused by the ridiculous things they say and lose my train of thought. How can I deal with these abstract statements that basically mean nothing when these discussions come up? How can I stop overcomplicating things for myself and learn to articulate the logic behind my beliefs without getting sidetracked or frustrated by all of the leftist propaganda out there? That's from Anson. All right, so Anson. Yes. Let's do the economy. Okay. I'm going to uh, I'm going to deport conversations about immigration for the <laughs> just for a moment. Oh, those are the hardest ones by far, the immigration ones. 
Uh, all right. Well, maybe we'll come back to it. Okay. So, first of all, who are these leftists? Are they friends, family, people on the subway, um, people in airplanes? Who are they? Uh, coworkers, um, friends, and some of them aren't even necessarily leftists. They just harbor these ridiculous ideas that are not based on facts, like you know, immigration. Like everyone deserves a second chance, and you know all this. And like I grew up with this. Like my dad. Like anytime you criticize him, like he deflects it by saying like with these abstract statements that mean nothing, like I call them isms. And it's just like, I get so infuriated when people do that. Like I can't outsmart people after that. I, I know I have no idea what to say. And it's like, okay, so it, it's about your dad, right? The reason you're having trouble with the leftists is they use the same tactics as your dad. I mean, to be blunt, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay. I mean, okay. that's what I get out of it at least. Right. Okay. So, there are a couple of principles which I think are helpful in this area. I'll go over them very briefly, and, and then you can tell me if, if they match, right? Okay. So the first, of course, is the idea that society is the state, right? And, and what this means is that people say, well, I want to help immigrants, or I want to help people, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone deserves a second chance. It's like, okay, then give it to them. But don't ask the government to do it. That's different, right? And it's Bastiat said this, you know, said, well, we, we don't want the government distributing corn. Oh, you want everyone to starve to death. It's like, you know, people can distribute corn who aren't part of the government, right? In fact, they'll do a much better job. So when it comes to, like you say, well, I want to help. Let's say you want to help people in Mexico. Okay, send them some money. There are tons of charities who will help people in Mexico. So the idea that if you want to help Mexicans have a better life, that doesn't mean that you need some big, giant-ass government program to, to drag them over and pay them welfare and this, like that. How is that? I mean, that, that's not the only way to do it. And it's probably not the best way to do it. I mean, I'm speaking, you know, I know it is not, but in terms of like helping lefties, right? The other thing, too, you know, one of the big problems, you know, why has the third world become such a crap hole in, in so many ways? Well, partly that's the result of immigration. Because what happens is when Western countries open their borders to immigration from the third world, who leaves first to come to the West? The countries that are not as well off as the West. Right. But who in those countries, which what, uh, what type of person tends to be the first to leave when immigration opens up in the West? And I don't mean like unfettered, cross the Mediterranean on a toothpick kind of immigration. I mean, legal immigration where you got to fill out a bunch of forms, you got to pay money, you've got to wait, you've got to navigate bureaucracy. Does it tend to be smarter people or less smart people who can do that? Through legal channels, definitely smarter people. Right. Okay. Now, the migrant thing is a totally different kettle of fish. So we're just talking about the legal immigration to the West will disproportionately scoop intelligent people out of the third world and bring them to the West. Right? Right. Now, let's say <laughs> that you take 10% of the smartest people out of some third world country. Who's left? Like the 90% of the people that are less intelligent. The Jethro's. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> the Beverly Hillbillies, right? So there's a giant brain drain. Through legal immigration, there's a giant brain drain 
of taking competent, intelligent people out of those countries. Now, in a lot of those countries, it's not like they're up to their eyeballs in brains anyway. I mean, so you're yeah. taking the people who might otherwise be running their social institutions. You're taking the people who might otherwise be running their governmental institutions. You're taking the people out who might otherwise have started businesses. You're taking people out who otherwise might have figured out really great medical treatments or might have found some way to convince people in Africa to stop eating bats. You're like, whatever it is, right? And so when you take people out of those countries, I get that the people who are in those countries want to come to the West because it's a lot easier to get something built at Ikea and delivered to your house than to try and build it yourself in your basement. I get that. I'd much rather get a ping pong table coming to me as a ping pong table rather than six million parts and a potential migraine, right? Right. So I get it. People want to come to the West because the West is more free and it's more civilized and it's more reasonable and it's blah, 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 right? Yeah. So well, I, I completely and totally understand that. However. We must understand that that guarantees a vastly reduced standard of life in the originating country. So we're helping a small number of people, and we are harming enormously a huge number of people. Oh, look, the 25,000 smartest people in Pakistan have come to the West. Oh, and then what? What happens to Pakistan? What happened, right? What happens then? So it's a disproportionately taking people who are the only chance these countries have for improvement. Let's not kid ourselves. Smart people are the only chance these countries have for improvement. We are taking the only chance the third world has to improve out of the third world and dumping it into the first world. Yeah, we're and they're not going being, back. I mean, Sorry? it's depriving the it's depriving the rest of the world of like people with you know higher IQ and like I've watched a lot of your videos on how much IQ has to do with just your success in general in life. And I mean, yeah, you are condemning you are condemning to perpetual Stone Age poverty countless countries around the world by taking the only smart people out of the country and bringing them to the West. So it's just, and then what happens is say, well, we got to put a lot of Got to put a lot of foreign aid into these third world countries because they don't seem to be doing so well. No kidding. Really. Taking all the smart people out of the third world countries, funnily enough, they're not doing that well. Well, yeah, I think you're right. Hey, funnily enough, take all the doctors and nurses out of the hospital. You don't get better. When you go there, in fact, you get sick because everyone else is coughing. They're not getting better. Come on. Like it's like it's like it's like taking all the good actors out of a movie and then wondering why the movie doesn't sell. I mean, even okay. I mean, I've done a lot of research on these topics, and I know I've done more research than the people I talk to. And it's just that in those moments where they start saying these things, okay, fine, we'll do it. Give me a role play, fine, 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 fine. I'll pretend it's a choice. Now, okay, give me a role play. You be one of these lefties, and we'll we'll do immigration if you want. Okay. Um, so I would like to put a pause on immigration. Whatever you say, right? Okay. And what do they say? You just pretend to be them. Well, I mean, why do you want to do that? 
Don't you care about the people that are trying to get into this country and have a better life? Sure. Then. Sure, but um, I also care about my family, my children, right? Because the people who are coming in are huge drains on society as a whole. Uh, I also care about their country and their future because everyone who's trying to come into this country is usually smarter than the population they're leaving behind, which means that if less intelligent people are left behind in those countries, those countries are never, ever going to get better. And, you know, as far as the migrants go, the cost of resettling someone in the Middle East is $1,000. It's almost $13,000 to resettle someone in America. So it's better for them to be in the Middle East, same culture, same language, same culture, same geography, same weather, whatever you name it, same religion. So we should help 13 people in the Middle East rather than bring one person to the West. So I, I do care about them, which and I, but I also I'm allowed to care about myself and my family too, right? I mean, we, we have a country that is is massively in debt. You can say this for all the Western countries. We're already massively in debt. We simply can't bring endless amounts of people in who cost money out of the public treasury because we have no money. We have no money left. So what's going to happen is we're going to bring a bunch of people in. They're not going to integrate because they're on welfare. And then we're going to run out of money. And then what? Is that kind to them? Like, you got to think smarter than just the sentimentality of the moment. What about the people all left behind? They've got, all the smart people have left and they can't figure out how to make their country better. What about the long-term effects of all of this? What about my family? What about the debt? It's a little bit more complicated than let's be nice to everyone. I mean, I don't know what to say after that because if some – like you're mean you can say you're a racist <laughs> well yeah i'm sure yeah that would come i mean i told a girl i was a donald trump french fan uh fan and she called me a sexist so yeah i'm sure that would definitely follow what's up. wrong with being sexy no, man, come on. <laughs> i mean yeah it turns into a character assassination once they realize that you've actually got some facts and you know but they're pissed off because they want to hold on to their ideas and they want to be right and they want to No, no, they don't want to hold on. They've got no ideas. No, they don't want they they want to hold on to their sentimentality. And so, uh, let's just say you call me a sexist or a racist or whatever, right? Okay. Okay. So then you could say something like this. You are a horrible human being. You are a horrible human being. Look, you brought up a topic and we started debating it. Am I saying I've got all the absolute final answers? I didn't say that. I made some arguments. Those arguments have facts, reason, and evidence behind them. Now, if you're going to sit around and turn around and just start slandering someone, that is incredibly irresponsible. It's incredibly destructive. It's incredibly disrespectful. And you know what? It's incredibly racist of you. I didn't bring race into it. So the fact that you're starting to bring race into it when I didn't mention anything about race means that you're the one who thinks in terms of race all the time, which makes you the racist because you're calling me as a white person racist when I never mentioned race at all, which means that you're judging me as a white person. Guess what? You're a racist. And if you want to have conversations with adults, if you want to have conversations where intelligent people exchange ideas for the betterment of the world – you got to come up with something a little better than, you're a racist, you're a sexist, you're a misogynist. I mean, this is not, that's not having an argument. That's not even having a tantrum. That's just a confession that you belong at the children's table, not the adult's table. Now, if you want to get some facts, and if you want to take a break and say, listen, I haven't heard these facts and arguments before. Let me go and check them out. Let me get back to you. That's perfectly fine. And maybe you'll come up with something that's going to repudiate and we'll both end up wiser and better because of it. 
But if you're just going to vomit up stupid, silly, negative ad homonyms, then you're just telling me that you really don't belong in any kind of adult discussion about important things. And you should stop uh, uh, trying to to pretend that you can juggle uh, when you can barely even find your face with your hands. Yeah, I recognized what you did at the what you're talking about at the end. I watched that presentation by Ben Shapiro about arguing with liberals and um I'm telling you man, like my brain just freezes up in those situations. Like if I'm talking to people that are like like-minded, I have no problem articulating where I'm coming from. But I mean, what is the best way to approach like these discussions? When do you like just Why why do you want to? I I guess I'm kind of freaked out about the state of things right now. Like I feel like Western. No, I I get that. I get that. But but if I don't speak Japanese and I'm freaked out about something, I don't go and talk to people who only speak Japanese because I'm not doing anything because they don't understand what I'm saying and I don't understand what they're saying. So Mike, you you probably feel like like a lot of people do. You feel helpless, right? Yeah. And you feel desperate. Well, I've got to get people to agree with me so that the world gets better. I mean, right? yeah, I mean, that's a good Okay, so, so here's the important thing to understand, Anson. If you feel helpless, the worst thing to do is try and talk to people who reject reason and evidence. Because what's that going to make you feel even more of? More helpless. Yeah. See, this is the tactic of leftists. They invite you into a debate. And they throw reason and evidence to the wind and they manipulate and they insult and they dodge and they squirm and they whatever, right? Yeah. So that you end up bewildered and helpless. <laughs> yeah. Right? There are some animals who will attack you with a tooth and claw and there are other animals that, you know, like the Komodo dragon just gives you a little chomp, a little nip, and then you just get weaker over time. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's a venom, right? It's kind of venom. And so there are people in your life, there are people... I've met, I disagree with them significantly, but they energize me. There are people I've met I agree with significantly, and they drain me. And it's good. So it's not the particular perspective. It's the methodology. It's the engagement. It's the interest. It's the willingness to listen, to, to debate back, to get involved, to get engaged, right? To be even remotely an adult in these areas, right? Most people intellectually, Anson, are barely out of the crib, so true. You need no, but you get, but you get that, but you don't get it, right? Like I get it in thought, but I definitely don't practice it. You don't get it, right? Listen, you and I are in a field. We got catcher's mitts, well oiled. I got my left-handed one, yay! And like when I first came to North America, and we got you know one of those big old hunking brain busting baseballs, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, cricket ball, even better. Basically twine wrapped in concrete, right? <laughs> and so we've got this, you know, and you and I, we can like, sun can be going down. We can be listening to music. We can be chatting a bit. And we can be like 100 yards away from each other, throwing the balls back and forth all day, right? And it's nice. I like that. You know, it's just, it's cool. I mean, I'm a frisbee guy. I'm a throwing ball. I, I love that stuff. It's great, right? So you and I can be doing that because we're adults, right? Now, let's say that you have a three-month-old baby. And I say, I'm going to play catch with this brain-busting concrete cricket ball with your three-month-old baby. What are you going to say? 
um, you're it's like you need to rethink what you're doing. I hope you'd be a little bit more assertive than that. Like, no, you crazy bastard, you're going to kill him. Because you're going to throw the ball, it's going to bust his head open, right? Yeah. Because he's three months old. Can't even, doesn't even, he's not even know what a catch mitt is. Or a baseball glove, right? Yeah. Same thing, you know, let's prop your, I can give one out here to Mike. Let's prop your three-month-old up, and I'm going to take slap shots at the hockey net with your three-month-old baby there, right? How's that going to work out? It's not. So when you genuinely recognize that most people are still in the crib when it comes to intellect, they don't know how to debate, they don't know how to argue, they don't know how to reason, they're entirely emotion-based. Come on. They've been raised by women. They've been trained in school by women. Mm -hmm. Did you get a lot of logic classes when you were a kid from women? No. You didn't, did you? Not really. A lot of famous female philosophers in the in the logic camp uh no not that come to mind yeah brand a couple that's right but it's it's kind of a sausage fest right and it's even worse now than it than it was in the past so unfortunately we have the fascism of fields right Well, I feel sentimental about immigrants. I care for them. Why? Because because I don't have any babies, right? This is another fundamental thing, too. Do people have children? Like, it's not 100%, right? Ayn Rand didn't have kids, and Coulter doesn't have kids, and, you know, they're both pretty ferocious when it comes to reason and evidence in many, many ways, right? Milo. Unlikely to, well, not going to have biological kids. Maybe he'll adopt one day. But people who, women in particular who don't have kids, I'm always suspicious about their sentimentality. I'm always suspicious about the sentimentality of women. So I've been watching this show. Spoilers. (laughs) I've been watching this show. It was recommended to me a long time ago. I never got around to watching it. Called uh, The Island. With Bear Grohl, or whatever his name is, right? And basically, there are 14 men and 14 women all dropped in different islands. And they, they've got nothing. they got a couple of fish hooks and a day's supply of water. And they have to figure out how to survive. The men have to go and try and kill a crocodile to get so hungry at some point, right? And on the women's island... Oh, don't even get me started. But anyway, everyone, everything everyone said from the MGTOWs is true. But the women... Adopt these two baby pigs and name them and cuddle them and sleep with them. Oh, my. Right? And, um, you know, at some point, they get hungry. <laughs> I can't eat something I've named. And there are a couple of sensible women who are like, don't name them. Don't name them. It's, come on. We know where they're going to end up. And um, they're very sentimental. And they're all like, so that when the men get the crocodile, they're like, gentlemen, we have handbags, right? <laughs> like they're thrilled. They're, ooga, ooga, you know, coming in now. Hey, I get baby pigs are cuter than crocodiles. But they're like, yes, we got the crocodile. Come and eat, right? And the women are all like crying because they have to kill the baby pigs to eat them. And it's like, it's not bad. It's not a men, good, women, bad thing. I mean, it's just different wiring because, you know, babies and breastfeeding and, right? I mean, so 
sentimentality for women is designed for their babies. And when women don't have babies, they adopt migrants. They adopt immigrants. They adopt minorities. <laughs> Whatever, right? The, the, the sentimentality. So they can exercise their sentimentality on pretend children substitutes, and they don't have any real children that are competing for those resources, right? That's fascinating. So they can virtue signal all they want. Angela Merkel, who has no children. Yeah. They can virtue signal all they want. It's not costing their children anything. And women have this instinctual desire to nurture and to protect and to give over to people who are needy. It's beautiful. It's beautiful unless there's a big state and not a lot of children around. Then you get this complacent, like insane pathological altruism where the entire planet becomes the missing children in the woman's lonely-ass, ancient, cat-feeding family portraits of nothingness. So it's really, really important to understand what you're dealing with here. When you talk to a lot of, I think, really think this is true. I can't prove it. I understand. It's just a way of looking at things. I think it's true. When you talk to a lot of women and you talk about putting the border up, what they hear is, I'm not going to let you see your children. That's how it registers to them? I really believe it does. What if they I really, I'm not saying consciously, but if if groups have become child substitutes for women, then it's really a different emotional experience, mm-hmm. right? Like, so I mean, we all know what it is with women and cats, right? Yeah, I mean. They dress them up. They feed them gourmet stuff. They give them names. They project weird, meaningless personalities. Oh, he's feeling mischievous. No, he's a cat. Can't even recognize something in a mirror. Ah, bemused resignation is emanating from my cat. No, furry projection is bouncing back your craziness from your cat. And we all know what it's like with women and the cats if they're single. If they don't have children, all of that maternal energy, all of that investment, like women are designed to have like eight or 10 children, children, real human beings who grow and do stuff other than hopefully don't pee on your couch. Right. And. The hope that so this massive amount of sentimentality that women have, which is designed to help them nurture an endless wave of helpless dependent infants and bring them to adulthood. I mean, look at Phyllis Schlafly, mother of the year, six kids. She's fine without migrants. Because the reason why women who don't have kids but who have kids substitutes never grow up. Because their child substitutes never grow up. Like if you get cats and they become your pretend kids, they're never growing up. Which means you never have to escape the early infancy part of motherhood. 
which means you can remain ridiculously sentimental and coochie and brain dead. And listen, I've, I've been around babies. They're, you know, they're wonderful. But you, you know, every phase that you, with a kid, it's like, wow, this phase is great. Man, I can't wait for this phase to end. <laughs> you know, and the next phase comes, wow, this phase is great. And you like it for a while. And then you're like, wow, I'm really looking forward to this phase ending and all that, right? But with, when there's child substitutes rather than children, the women never have to grow up to match the accomplishments and growth and maturation of their children. Which is why the old cat ladies are so retarded in so many ways. Because they, the, the cats have never grown up. They've never achieved independence. They're not exactly filling out college applications for Chairman Meow, right? Yeah. So it's important to understand at what primal level you are dealing with with a lot of people. The women's desire to nurture is very powerful. And it also doesn't help when you have mother-headed or single-mom households with all of this stuff because it's the dad's job to step into the sentimentality and pry it off the kid. Nah, she'll be fine. She can jump from the top step. Oh, she'll be fine. She doesn't need training wheels anymore. Oh, she'll be fine. If she falls, she'll learn. She'll get up, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, most moms wouldn't let their kids learn how to ride a bike if they weren't in full plate armor. Whereas, you know, when I was learning how to ride a bike, I was like strawberry elbows, strawberry knees. Those were like weeks. I'm fine, right? And so when you have a lot of, because, you know, say we're women, but a lot of men now too, but they're all raised with this hyper-caution, bubble-wrap the kids fear women have. Women in the absence of men turn paranoid and hyper-sentimental and lose their bearings. Listen, bad things happen to men in the absence of women as well. But we're just talking about this other thing, like women in the absence of men go crazy. Oh, I've seen it, <laughs> right? And we're seeing it as a society, this crazy, no in-group preference, no borders, no, like everything's sentimental, everything's emotional driven, it's the next five minutes. That's because there's nobody around saying, stop it. Stop it. You chose not to have children. I'm not going to pretend there's imaginary children out there for you to avoid the pain and the loss of not having children. Right? If you choose not to have children, that's fine. That's fine. But then don't take the bullshit substitute kids route. Because that is incredibly destructive because the migrants aren't your children. The cats aren't your children. The immigrants aren't your children. The poor people aren't your children. So this is the level that you're dealing with, that people at an emotional level have made these crazy associations facilitated by the state, right? When women don't have men around and they have kids and they have bills, they run to the government in general. So the government has become the husband. But without all of those annoying equality demands, right? He's become the sugar daddy where you don't even have to get a boob job. And so when women don't even have kids and don't have a husband, then other things become their kids. Because, like, there's, let me tell you, before, so other thing become the kids, the governments have to pay virtue signaling, blah, 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 right? But let me tell you something about middle-aged women who are ridiculously unhappy these days, like crazy unhappy. 
So middle-aged woman. Life gives you significant sorrow and mortality in the reality of aging parents, right? So the way that life is supposed to work is you push your children into adulthood and you lower your parents into the grave. That's how life is supposed to work. You know, 25-year, 30-year generations, right? Mm-hmm. So your, your, your kids grow into adulthood. And as they grow into adulthood, oftentimes your parents are in declining health. And we're talking like I know we the crypt keepers live forever now. It's just biologically in general. And the, the happiness of seeing your children go out into the world as adults and get married and have kids and the happiness that you feel, it's the bittersweetness. You feel happiness about that, but a lot of times at the same time, and if you're lucky, your kids are healthy, your parents are healthy, but a lot of times as your kids are going out into the world, getting married, having their own kids, your own parents are aging. And that's the bittersweet cycle of life that we all, a lot of us have to recognize and, and deal with. Ah, but my friend, if you are a woman who's not had children and you're close to your parents, then what happens is you you come into middle age. You are lowering your parents into the grave, but not shepherding any children into adulthood. Could you imagine how depressing that is? There's no new life. You're burying the old life. And you will follow, and you've not used the gift of your existence to bring anyone into existence. And you're trailing after your parents down the soft steps to an ashy grave to nothingness. Because when you don't have children, and you don't do something important in the world, right? Most people, they're not out there writing best-selling books or having giant YouTube channels or influencing whatever, whatever, right? But if you don't have children, almost everything that you are in general will vanish and be forgotten. When you don't have children, all the photos you take with your cell phone will never be looked at again after you're dead. All the pictures, the boxes of pictures, the accumulated pictures and photos, and, and you, oh, you saved that receipt from that movie, and you saved that receipt from that play, and you, you saved that little piece of lace that you were working on once, and one day we're going to finish. If you don't have any kids, you know, deep down in your heart, you bury your parents. Okay, you'll look at their pictures for a while, and you're going to get old. And you got these hard drives and and flash drives full of photos, all the things you did. And you know when you get older and when you you die, first of all, who's going to be there when you go through the process of sinking into death? And secondly, think of all the photos, all the photos you've took. Nobody will ever look at them again. Now, if you have children... People will remember you. You will have had you will have an you will have had an effect future into into the future pretty much forever. Yeah, the butterfly effect. You have produced children, you have had a massive influence on them. That's going to influence their kids, it's going to influence everyone they meet. You create this wonderful ripple out into the future forever. You don't have kids. You are a spear dropped from an ancient height, vanishes 
into the pond, barely a ripple, boink, and you're done. So, childless women and childless men want their societies to continue. They didn't bother themselves to have any children. So they advocate for immigrants. So that some bodies can be in their houses after they're dead. So that they think that they're contributing something to the continuation of their society. They're not, I think, in many ways. But they didn't have children. They want their tribe to continue. So they want to import what they did not grow. And if that's not allowed, it creates a deep and existential pain in the heart of childless people. Because they know they haven't fundamentally contributed to the continuance of their tribe. They know that no one will remember them. They know that their photos will end up reformatted. You know, all this work to create and accumulate thousands of photos. Format, boom, gone. Somebody else will use that hard drive to store photos that will actually be looked at at some point in the future. And it would be interesting to me if there were a study done which measured whether people who have who are happily married, who have more kids, how they feel about immigration versus the people who have no kids or are single or unhappily married. Or whether people who tried to have kids but couldn't feel the same about immigration of people who chose not to have kids. We all need to contribute to our tribe. Because if we don't, there's no tribe. Now, some people can contribute to the tribe through having children. Some people can contribute to the tribe by great works, by inspiration, by storytelling, by songs, by improvements, by technology, by hiring people. But everyone deep down knows that they have to contribute to the tribe somehow. Or they're just kind of hangers on, they're getting by, they'll be forgotten. And it's not something I think a lot of people think about when they're younger, but middle age and afterwards, you, you, you start to think about your legacy. You do. How can I contribute to the tribe? I can help the poor. Ah, but if I actually have to help the poor, that's quite a bit of work. So what I can do is I can vote for someone who's going to help the poor. Now, it's true, my taxes will go up, but of course a lot of women work for the government, so <laughs> they're fine with taxes going up, there's more money for them. But it's true, my taxes will go up, but I don't have to do anything. It's easy legacy. It's lazy legacy. It's not a legacy. It's kind of a curse. I'm going to advocate for good things that other people will do. That's the virtue signaling. I'm going to contribute to my tribe without actually having to go out and do anything and without having to get up early, change diapers, and raise children. 
my contribution is going to be empty words and child substitution and weird, vague emotional offense should you question the actual contribution to the tribe that I'm imagining. So when you start to take away government programs from people, when you start to question their moral validity, this is what people have founded their sense of value and purpose and worth and contribution. This is what they have done with their lives if they've advocated for this stuff, and it is bound into their very sense of providing value to the world. I can get rid of government programs from a moral standpoint. Intellectually, I'll make that case because I know that they're interfering with actually doing good in the world. I've done so much good in the world. I have no need for any governmental substitutes. I am a father. So I never wake up and say, gee, I wonder if I've contributed to my tribe or the world. The tribe is not ethnic. Rational people, right? I don't ever wonder about the value of what I am doing with my life. Doesn't mean it can't be better. Just saying, I never sit there and say, boy, I wish I'd done something with my gifts. Boy, that wouldn't have been great. No, that's not an issue for me. So I don't need virtue signaling because I actually have virtue. I don't need other people to do stuff because I'm actually doing stuff. I don't need any child substitutes. I have a child. I don't need virtue signaling because I have virtue and I'm acting on it. I don't need to pretend. I don't need for other people to think I'm good because I'm doing good, actually doing good. So when you talk to, oh, let's close the borders. You're taking away people's foundational sense of what they're contributing to the tribe. And for most people in those situations, for a lot of people in those situations, it's too late for them to actually contribute to the tribe. You're taking away their drug of choice. Smug, virtuous self-congratulation. I believe, is the most powerful drug. Because the people who suffer usually suffer long after you're dead. It's really hard to quit heroin when you don't think anyone will suffer. And even if people will suffer, they'll suffer after you're dead, when the national debt comes due. So the reason why people lash out at you when you start taking away their moral signaling, their contribution to the tribe. Because when you say, the welfare state is bad, they think the welfare state is good and that their advocacy of the welfare state is their contribution to the virtue, to tribe, to memory, to history, to everything. You take that away from people? Ooh, it's a mic... Tyson blow to the solar plexus. Boom! You thought you were contributing, you were corrupting. You thought you were doing good, you were doing harm. You thought you were helping people, you were harming people. You thought you were contributing to the tribe, you were destroying the tribe. You gave up kids because you thought you could do good with all this crap. Now you don't have the kids, and the good you thought you were doing, which... Made it okay to not have kids. Turns out to be evil. Oops. Bad scene. 
And this is why people fight so ferociously. Every good that we're doing displaces other goods we could be doing. If I've spent my life virtue signaling and, oh, open the borders and more welfare and free education for everyone and blah, 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 right? Well, because I've done all of that crap, I haven't done a whole bunch of other stuff. So if that crap turns out to be good, there's no backup for me. If that, that stuff turns out to be bad, there's no backup for me. You are taking away people's sense of value and contribution. And you're not just taking it away, you're reversing it. You're saying to them, the good that justifies your existence and helps you live with the fact that you didn't have kids and didn't do anything of direct and immediate virtue with your life, all the things that make you feel like you're a good person, were deceptively implanted in you by power mongers who were using you as useful idiots to grow the state and destroy the future and kill the tribe. And you have no kids, and your parents are dying, and no one will ever look at your photos in the future. Does that help? Oh, yeah, that's that's some pretty mind-blowing stuff. Like, it makes... It helps me understand why people lash out the way they do because you're, it's like their whole sense of self worth is based on, you know, this bastardized sense of compassion. And like their parental instincts are like, you know, projected onto like the immigrants and, you know, the poor and everything. And when you. And the blacks for a lot of people too, or other minorities. Yeah, minorities. And if you try to like set them straight, you know, and dispense some logic like it's you know they they can't take it they feel like they're dying I guess they do and this annihilation panic is what happens when people's core moral beliefs are challenged it is a form of annihilation panic because remember our brains are so adept and I've talked about this in the gene wars presentations our brains are so advanced and adept with concepts that a lot of morality a lot of concepts are using us to reproduce themselves jumps from place to place like a cold like a an illness mm-hmm. and collectivism socialism state power pathological altruism these are viruses within our mind that are attempting to replicate. Definitely agree Now, with that. any animal, any animal that is faced with the end of its gene pool will react with unbelievable levels of ferocity. Collectivism is a virus that uses people to spread, and if you challenge that, collectivism triggers huge levels of rage in the same way a cornered rat will attack a bear. It's the end of the meme. It's the end of the concept if it's challenged and overthrown. So it triggers fight or flight in the host, the parasite of collectivism, the idea of collectivism. Triggers a fight or flight in the host brain to warn you off from trying to challenge its replication. And so once 
there has been an unconscious identification with any particular group as children. Well, you're coming between a mama grizzly and her cub. And what does the mama grizzly do? Attacks. And how? Like, they'll fight to the death. Yep. Yep. And it turns out, you can't fight a grizzly with graphs. <laughs> yeah. Or fact. Like, yeah. Or reasoned arguments. Right? Yeah, it's a cool. very primitive response to a meme or gene-threatening conversation. Your children, like the people who don't have kids, they don't know what it's like to be worshipped. I mean, if you're a good parent, your child will worship you. Now, it's hard. You, you can't get that anywhere else. That's a singular Drug. Yeah. Now, to be worshipped is is something that women in particular crave because if they didn't crave it, they would be bad moms, right? You want to be worshipped by your kid. You want to make your kid happy. You want your kid to light up when you come in the room. You want your kid to laugh when you make a joke. Like you want you you tickle you you make your kid happy, right? You want to be worshipped. So. Women, deep down, I believe this. I can't prove it. I'm just telling as a theory. Women, deep down, think the migrants will worship them the way kids should. Be so grateful. I love them. Love them. Thank you. Thank you for letting me into your country. Thank you for saving me from the hellhole I came from. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. We love you. What did women hold out for the migrants? Candy. Candy, which is what you give to children. So they'll be loved and people will be grateful and they'll feel maternal. And that they have value and they have continued the tribe and they have raised people by importing people. Instead of raising children to adulthood, they import people and turn them loose on society. Wow. I mean, I've watched the presentations on the RNK Selected, and is, is that like a way of just quantifying someone's behavior and like thought process, or is that like a real biological hardwiring that some people have? I believe it's a real biological hardwiring that seeks to reproduce itself. The, the R selection strategy seeks to alienate fathers from the family, seems to create, seeks to create a matriarchy and seeks to create an environment with seemingly infinite resources. So it can replicate. That's its Petri dish. That's what it feeds on. Meat eaters eat meat and the, uh, Vegetarians eat, eat uh, plant food, oh vegetables, right? So that, that's the nutrition. The nutrition for the R-selected is father absence, seemingly influent, uh, infinite resources, no in-group preference. That's what, So that's the welfare state, right? Get the, get the dads away, create seemingly infinite resources. That's what's going to recreate. That, that's what most feeds the R-selection gene set, whereas 
case selection genes that we talked about, father absence, uh, father presence, limited resources, high in-group preference, great investment in children, and so on, right? And what's always kept that at bay is the fact that children take a lot of resources. But with the welfare state, children now become a source of revenue rather than a cost, which is the ultimate R-selected steroid. Yeah. And um, the, the, the maternal instinct, the, the, the desire to have children, children take such an enormous amount of sacrifice. They, they, they really, I mean, it's incredible. And I'm, I'm one, right? I mean, you get eight kids. I mean, you, that's, your life is just being a mom. That's it. And that's going to be the case from, you know, biologically, from historically, when you're 14 to when you're 45. It's 30 years. That's most of your life when you're young. That's what women are designed for. Take kids out of the equation. It's a little. We've got to wonder, you know, say, oh, well, there's a power vacuum, right? Well, there's a child vacuum in the heart of women. What rushes in to fill the hearts of women in the absence of children? What decisions do women make if they choose not to have children or make stupid life decisions and end up not having children? What rushes in to fill? Well, projection, sentimentality, and the creation of entire classes of child substitutes. Which is why it's as tough to get women to understand that the refugees could be a problem in the same way that it's tough to get a mom to understand that her kid might be a bit of a brat. That's my child you're talking about. My child is wonderful. My child is the smartest. My child is the best. My Whatever, right? I mean, they can't see reason. Yeah. Because they're not seeing people. They're seeing kids. So what... Like you're definitely doing, you know, you're going above and beyond, like, you know, with, you know, creating the free domain, you know, radio show and like, you know, your videos on YouTube and everything, you know, you're enlightening people everywhere. Like what is, um, what are, what are, like, what am I supposed to do? Like what, how am I supposed to proceed through life with all these people like ruining the world around me? Like how am I supposed to deal with that? Well, did you, how big was the truth pill you just had to swallow? Um, like in I this mean, conversation I mean it went down pretty easy but it's pretty big right oh for sure okay so let that digest before you try and leap into action because everyone wow big truth bomb it's like okay now what do I do it's like well how about you digest right just mull this stuff over right okay. I mean I, I first of all I can't tell you what to do because the whole point is to uh, it's for you to find motivation within yourself let's say I said well go and do an X right well if it's not organic or genetic it's not organic within you it's not going to be sustainable i was so just absorb and and process and mull things over have more of these conversations test this theory maybe it's true maybe it's not maybe there's other things call back if you've got more information but this what should i do stuff Mm -mm -mm. Mm -mm -mm. don't give me that don't give me that nobody told me nobody told me and i'm not going to tell you okay I didn't mean it like it, like a super specific way, like, like. But I get what you're saying, though. Yeah. All right. Will you give it a try? Just you know, have these conversations and just notice people and see if they, you know, do they have kids? Do they whatever, right? Oh yeah. When you were talking to me about that, and I thought back to the people I talked to, like the the first three examples that popped in my head are 
um, women and they don't have, they're like in their mid to late twenties and they don't have kids. Right. So right. the empirical. So already that, they're not going to have a lot of kids, right? Yeah. So yeah, just something to, something to mull over. What do you contribute to your tribe if you don't even have children and you don't do big virtuous things in society? But again, people can choose not to have kids. Again, I want to say you got to have kids. I mean, I think people, it's good to have kids. I think it's great. We're all alive because someone made that choice. So it's kind of tough to wriggle out of that basic reality. But um, what do you do if you want to contribute to the tribe, but you're really, really lazy? Vote you pick a substitute and you virtue signal. And then you get really, really ferocious with anyone who tries to take away that bullshit drug from you, right? Yeah. All right. I'm going to move on to the next caller, but I really, really appreciate the, um, the question. I mean, I think it produced some stuff that I think will be very helpful to people. And listen, let, let us know. You know, this is a hypothesis, right? I mean, this is not like I don't have any ironclad studies on this, but, you know. People can let me know in the comments below, in the video, whatever, but just, you know, let us know what you think. Put out the experiment and we'll see if we can gather some data, even though it will still largely be anecdotal. Better than nothing, right? Yeah. Um, th thank you so much for taking the time, like you, for, you know, explaining all this to me. Like, you know, I definitely got a lot out of this. And um, Great, Anson. Well, I appreciate you calling in. All right. Who's up next? All right. Up next is Alexander. Alexander wrote in and said, I am a British citizen living in Italy. I used to work in both the UK Parliament in Westminster and the European Parliament in Brussels. As the Brexit referendum approaches, I am increasingly apathetic about the outcome. It will make no difference to the British sovereignty either way and distracts the population from a basic underlying reality. There is no way to influence an undemocratic institution by public vote. How should we conduct ourselves in the public life of a society which believes itself to be democratic, but whose every spasm of ideological posturing essentially masks the fact that we live in a benign, plurocratic dictatorship? That's from Alexander. Well, hello. How are you doing? Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm well. I, I feel like you've seen too much. <laughs> you know, like you, you've really been in the belly of the beast there, right? Uh, the more you see, the less you understand. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's sort of, I mean, you're sort of like the, um, what is it Paul McCartney used to say, that if slaughterhouses had glass walls, everybody would be a vegetarian. I mean, you have seen, uh, you know, UK Parliament, uh, especially the European Parliament in Brussels, which seems a particularly Caligula fest of irresponsibility and uh, three-day weekends and, and no accountability to anyone. I mean, that's a real belly of the beast situation, right? Oh, well, uh, yes, I, I suppose in a way it is, in a way it is. And also you, you get the sense of frustration being there that um, in spite of the fact you're in the belly of the beast, there's very little you can do, uh, very little you can do to analyze what's going on and, and influence anything. Um, I wonder if I, I could perhaps um, slightly clarify a bit on, on uh, the, the, the wording of the question. Um, sure. I think I use the word dictatorship, plutocratic dictatorship. Uh, I think dictatorship in, in uh, decent uh, British English um, gives the idea of um, a type of tyranny and perhaps linked with a personality cult, uh, which isn't true at all for the EU. Uh, the, the European Union is governed by, um, well, uh, I suppose principally the European Commission, which is staffed by 
highly intelligent, very well educated and very competent um, civil servants. Um, but, uh, the, well, they are, they are, they are, they're pretty, um, they're pretty, they're pretty good at a lot of what they do. There's a lot of internal, um, uh, you mean, sorry to take an extreme example. Well, uh, a lot of concentration camps are staffed by very intelligent and competent people, but what they're competent at is pretty horrible. <laughs> the, the, uh, yes. Well, a lot of, them, um, I, I think, I think, uh, that's, uh, <clears throat> They have they have mostly good intentions, I think, uh, but there's so much internal discord. I think one of the things which actually prevents it from coming a, a tyranny, one of the reasons I don't think it can become a tyranny, at least in its present manifestation, is that there's so much um, dissent within the within the management. They they can't actually decide which way to pull it a lot of the time. Um, I, I can give an example of this. I, I think there's a platitude which is. Um, Banded around, of course, this is uh, for, for perhaps your American listeners. This is particularly pertinent at the moment because of the, the Brexit debate. But there's a platitude that the uh, European Union, of course, is undemocratic. Um, and I'm not quite sure to what extent the British voters actually really believe this is true. But it, it really is completely disconnected from any lever of power, any, anything you, anyone you vote for. They, they have a democratically elected parliament, but it's disconnected from every lever of power. And I've been in a position before in which um, a member of the, the commission or a commissioner's staff has approached me to lobby the parliament in order to lobby the commission back to itself, if you see what I mean. So I don't, uh, but can, can you take another run at it? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, <clears throat> sorry, 4 a.m. Um, uh, oh, so no, no it, might, it might be me, so don't worry about yeah, that. No, 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 it, no, it's me. It's entirely me. Um, uh, uh, the, I, I worked in the European... Uh, parliament for the for for a uh, for an opposition, um, and I found myself in a position in which sometimes a commissioner or a commissioner's staff, I should say, uh, disagreed with what another department within the commission wanted to do with legislation the commission wanted to propose. So he'd call me at my desk, and I'd meet him in a cafe. And he would pass me a brown envelope full of uh, information, basically saying, this is how you attack this uh, proposal. So you take this into the parliament and you feed it to MEPs and they will uh, uh, attempt to, 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 to stop it from coming through. So you get one department within the commission working against another department because one part of the commission might have a special interest, which another part. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the Yes Minister is uh, obviously a famous show that that deals with this in, in horribly gruesome but funny detail, well, right? the degree uh, of infighting yes, and bureaucratic yes, manipulation. As, as I remember, was, was... yes, yes. I think Yes Minister, that show pertained mostly to to the situation in, in Whitehall, um, between Whitehall and the government. Um, and I think uh, there's probably a kernel of truth in, in some of the some of the farce uh, in that, um, uh, especially the, 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 with the with the referendum coming up. I'm not entirely sure how um, by what mechanism we can detach ourselves very quickly from this. Uh, say, for oh, example, sorry, it's not going to be quick. And, yes, and if the Brexit vote were to go to to leaving. Without a doubt, Alexander, the European Union would try to make it as ugly and difficult a process as humanly possible in order to discourage anybody else who might want to get off the Titanic as well, right? Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Um, well, uh, yeah, 
Yeah, um, I, well, you know, but I, I wonder, I'm, because you, of course you're a philosopher, so you, you have a particular angle on this. I think it was Plato who said that democracy itself isn't a particularly um, good form of government. And so my, my issue with the EU is, isn't so much that it's not democratic, because it, it's, it's not, but um, my, my, my issue is, it, is it, it makes up rules as it goes along in order to... Um, in order to uh, perpetuate its own existence. It has no particular constitution, it has no particular parameters within which it will keep its its um, its legislative process um, contained in the interests of the people. Um, so it 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 follows uh, um, it, it, it follows just its own own, own whim. It makes up the rules as it goes along, um, and so I, I wonder. I wonder if if there's such a thing as a a, a more benign. Uh, if as we live in a fairly benign, if, if I'm allowed to call it that, a plutocratic dictatorship, um, how does one conduct oneself? There's no, there's nothing. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. The, the, the lobbyists, for example, we have we have we have civil civil society sends lobbyists to the European Parliament. Apparently unaware that that the Parliament doesn't really affect very much. He should lobby the Commission, but of course the the media don't report what goes on in the Commission because you don't report what goes on behind closed doors. Um, so there's very little coverage of what really matters. And um, and uh, I'm it's. But at the same time, I can understand the, the sentiment of the people who are going to, to vote to remain in, because I think that, that Britain, and perhaps it's the same in North America and Canada as well, a lot of the British, um, they exist on very uh, thin lines of, of credit. And if the interest rates move just a little bit, anyone who has a mortgage or a credit card or depends upon uh, a company which is perhaps propped up by an environment conditioned by years of protective legislation. Um, oh, no, I, I get all of that. But look, I mean, the, the people who are going to make a moral decision around voting, like it's, it's a moral decision around voting for Brexit, are people who are going to say, well, the interest rates will do this or the, the balance of trade will do that. I mean, it's all nonsense. We, we don't make moral decisions based upon forecasted interest rates. Like I remember the abolitionists trying to end slavery, saying, well, I'm not imitating you here, but saying, well, you see, what we have to do is try and figure out what the market of labor is going to be for cotton picking in 25 or 30 years. I mean, that's not how you do it. It's not how you make a moral decision. You say, is it right or is it wrong? And if it's right, then you do it. And if it's wrong, then you don't do it. But this idea that you can somehow figure out what the interest rates or the balance of trade payments or the trade, whatever that's going to be like in five or 10 years. And can you imagine the founding father saying, well, you know, we really want to get away from this corrupt King George, but first we're going to need a feasibility study on what the economy is going to look like in five or 10 or 15 years. It's like, nope, they had a goal which was to reduce the size and power of government manipulation and control over their lives. That was their goal. And the idea that, because I, I looked up some of this stuff because I was thinking of doing another Brexit presentation, but the reality is that it's all made up. I mean, you oh, it's going to be wonderful. Oh, it's going to be terrible. I mean, just based upon prejudice or, or based upon particularly usually underreported self-interest or whatever. So when it comes to Brexit, the question is, can you reduce the size, scope, and power of the state in your life? Well, of course, if you vote to leave, then yes, yes, you can. Because it's not like they reduced the British government an enormous amount when they added the European layer on top, right? 
Uh, well, yes, certainly not. Yes, but uh, so so you've got a lot of what British what government plus Europe. Hang on, hang on. You got British government plus European government, which is a double whammy. Would you like to get hit once or twice? Oh, and by the way, the second hit is a lot hotter. Well, no, I think I'd rather get hit once. So the idea that with a particular vote you can take out the entire layer of European tyrannical, manipulative, self-interested, unaccountable government. Boom! Gone! I mean, go to people who are really interested in states' rights and say, hey, you can, in a checkbox, you can virtually eliminate federal government control over your state. What do you think they'd say? Hell yeah! Because <laughs> they're the new King George, except closer and bigger and better armed. So with, with, with the Brexit thing, it's just, well, can you take out an entire layer of government control over your lives Without having to have a revolution. Little checkbox. Well, good. <laughs> then do it. Because, but the idea that, you know, I mean, some people will try and guess what the interest rates will. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Anybody who knows could make a complete fortune and then nobody knows. Yes. And in terms of the weight of legislation that flows from Europe, you can certainly start to plug the dam. Um, even then, it would take a while. I think we have a lot of uh, running dogs in Whitehall who will continue to take instructions from Brussels. We have people probably in the direct employ of Brussels sitting in Whitehall right now. Um, and, and, you know, there might have to be some sort of, a, I, I don't know, um, an operation to, to remove these people bit by bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, a heck of a lot of legislation, domestic legislation in Britain rests upon what has been coming out of Brussels since 1973. And um, do, you know, do you know how European law is passed into British law? Uh, they, they do it by, by amending secondary legislation quite a lot of the time. And any legal textbook will tell you that if you, if you amend a statutory instrument or something like that, the amendment has to be laid before Parliament and, and the Parliament can then pray it down if they want. Um, but in practice, this very seldom happens. I think it happened last in about 2001, and you might get dozens of these things going through in a month or even a week. Um, and so there's, there's certainly less and less power now within the parliament, and it's, it's gone to the civil service. Um, and I wonder to what extent our elected leaders can, um, can pull back power from the civil service. I think what it comes down to is the relationship between the legislature and the executive uh, in Britain. Um, but yes, You're like I, the least inspiring revolutionary I've ever heard in my life, man. Oh, my God. Can you can you just get some balls and passion behind? Well, I don't know about this. That. Who knows? Who knows? But here's a chance for a huge layer of government to be potentially pushed back. Yes. A chance. Yes. Who knows? Who knows? Listen, if they don't vote to leave, it sure ain't going anywhere. And if they vote to leave, let's say there's only a 10% chance it diminishes enormously. Well, that's a pretty good payoff for five seconds in a voting booth. I think the really exciting thing about it, actually, is that right now we have looming before us the spectacle of a, a wealthy nation, Britain, um, which might actually vote to remain in, while we have poorer countries like, like, like I don't know, Hungary and, and Poland and, and, you know, very nearly Austria recently, who are actually pioneering various courses toward freedom. And, I, you know, people might argue they're much less um, able, much worse equipped to do this because, I don't know, they're, they're economically more fragile, they're landlocked, some of them, they're surrounded by um, countries which perhaps don't share their um, cultural outlook necessarily. And um, I think if we if we if we do vote to leave, we could we could really put the uh, well, we would certainly inspire them much more. Um, they no, they're they're none of these things. The reason 
that they don't want to be in or, or want to leave. In general, I'm talking about the Eastern European countries, is of course they have a lot of experience with uh, external domination in the form of the USSR, in the form of, if you go back further historically, uh, in, in the Nazis, uh, if you go back further historically, the Ottomans, uh, the, the the Turks, the I mean, again, this is a big scattershot, but uh, there have been Muslim, uh, Muslim occupation of those countries. And they're not decadent. You know, they're not uh, big, lazy, virtue signaling, uh, aren't we great, aren't we wonderful, we have all these inf infinite resources, so it would be churlish to not hand them out to poor and migrants and immigrants, and right, they're just, they have an in-group preference, they have a historical skepticism of external power, and they know how fragile their freedoms are, and so they're not going to screw around with them in the way that the virtue signaling Western European power seem to be. So uh, it's a whole different stage of civilization for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I mean, and you, you can see, I think you can see the collapse of the of the union in, in the fact that they've, they've now backed down in the face of, do you remember when, when Hungary stuck up that wall? I think it was about a year ago. And everyone yeah. in Brussels went completely ballistic. You don't hear about it now. They don't care anymore. And I think, I think you know, Germany are talking about a, a wall on their southern border. They've closed the Brenner Pass and that sort of thing. Uh, you can you can tell this is the collapse of the union because it's their apathy. They can't, they can't, Stop. Well, they don't. They don't want to remind people that Hungary put up a wall, because like that's going to be like, oh, we can do that. Okay, let's do that. Right? It's now just become like, I hope nobody looks at Hungary in a wall. They can't. They can't. Um, afford, so. They can't afford not to uh, not to allow people to put up walls if they want. I reckon that's that's one thing. Yeah. And there's going to need to be a sanctuary place for some the Europeans to go to. Sorry, go ahead. Well, so, yeah, what's so annoying about the Europe is they, they, they can see economic sense. They can see uh, a sensible thing to do if someone is threatening to break off. I mean, I remember so much legislation which had exceptions for, for example, the, the Azores Islands and uh, Madeira and things like that. So territories, I know French Guyana and things like that, territories which are on the periphery, which could go the way of, um, uh, uh, what's it called, Greenland which could break off. So as soon as somebody's looking like they might leave, they start to get a better deal. Um, and yeah, but I mean, but the, that, that kind of brinksmanship, like who wants to stay married to a woman that you have to threaten to leave her just to get like a decent word out of her? I mean, that's, oh, yeah, yeah. that's not good. Yeah. It's a hostage situation. A very, a very no, it's, not, it's not sustainable. Look, and, and, and back to um, Yes Minister, all of this stuff was perfectly predicted in Yes Minister. The ridiculous amounts of, of uh, uh, regulation, hyper-regulation. I mean, you have to call sausages uh, awful tubes or something. Like, it, it was just, it was all well-known. This is all the same usual collectivist nonsense uh, that has been going on uh, since the dawn of time, where, you know, we're just, we're one more bureaucratic layer away from paradise. Uh, and uh, a big, a big giant uh, mess. And... Europe uh, is tragically, like a lot of cultures, have had to have their never again moment, right? Where I just say, okay, things got so unbelievably bad that anybody who suggests that for the next thousand years is going to be roundly mocked and ostracized. And unfortunately, um, because we've lost the capacity to listen to reason and evidence, I've got this presentation called The Death of Reason about that, because we've lost the ability to listen to reason and evidence in general, Europeans are going to have to learn from unbelievably brutal experiences. And it's a shame, but... You know, the doctor can only say um, you need to lose weight and exercise. They can't force you to do it. And uh, if it takes the heart attack for you to reform, well, maybe you'll listen better next time. That's, the, you know, where a lot of things I think are with regards to Europe. I'm not like I know that some people like Mila was saying like Europe is done and, and Europe is history and Europe is never going to recover and all that. Um, 
I have a slightly different take on that, but uh, that may be because I haven't been there for a while. But sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fragment back into its constituent parts. So, and you can see it already. Regardless of, of how we vote, this is kind of the way things are going. You can see that there's this, this rise of of frustration, uh, which is taking hold in, in Italy, I think, Germany. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all across the, the continent. People are now saying things which they wouldn't have said a, a year ago um, about, OK, let's let's. Um, reconsider especially uh, things which arise from this 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 crisis of, of migrants um you know it's, it's it's not it's not um it's not being accepted in the way it was a year ago and that's certainly true and i think the referendum is almost a symptom of the collapse rather than likely to be a court if we vote in then i mean what the government are looking for i think is a mandate to continue this Un, um, unaudited spree of destruction and to, and to help crush the, well, I, I just shouldn't say crush, press perhaps the, the um, less economically powerful countries across the union. If we give them that mandate, they'll take it. And we'll have to watch this, this shrieking diva shout herself hoarse and collapse in the land, uh, limelight. Uh, but perhaps, perhaps we can, you know, um, uh, um, cut the swan, swan, swan song short a little by getting out that would be that was, that's my sort of my my hope um well, but getting getting out is just going to be the beginning of the process beginning of the, the process, um, yeah yeah the, the the migrant crisis is going to be the end of the welfare state in one form or another i mean my in my particular opinion just because because math and um so uh the welfare state has been a disaster all around and uh it's not something that has been able to be argued against i've been arguing against it for over 30 years so um the welfare state is not something where people listen to reason so they're just going to have to listen to experience and it's going to be unpleasant and it's going to be ugly uh but the welfare state um can't survive the migrant crisis in my opinion now if uh, immigration or migration can be controlled to the point where there can be a softer landing for the welfare state the welfare state can't survive math at all right no matter what uh and so um uh, this massive, disastrous half-century experiment of the welfare state, uh, which has been tried in England before, uh, Spenum land is something worth looking up and destroyed the economy for uh, hundreds of years in certain sections of, uh, of England. The welfare state or unjust spoils and gains was tried when um, the uh, Spanish government sent over the conquistadors and the New World brought back huge amounts of gold, which made them fantastically pseudo-rich for a little while and then destroyed the Spanish economy for about 400 years. Uh, now, we don't have to have those kinds of lags because we've got better communications technology now, but the welfare state as a whole uh, has attracted the migrants, is enabling the migrant crisis, and the migrants will most likely take it down um, just in terms of, of numbers and taxpayers and so on. So some control over the borders um, will help uh, extend that, um, but certainly British people who live in England uh, of all ethnicities, should have more of a say in who comes into the country. Um, that's just reality. Yeah, in a free country, who cares? But it's not a free country. And so if people are going to come and live in your house, well, uh, it's okay to uh, vet them at the door. So I'm going to move on to the next caller, but I appreciate the question. We'll see what happens. You know, I mean, to me, as a philosopher, you can't lose. Uh, because if um, if people, like, let's say there's a massive vote for Brexit, but Brexit doesn't happen, well, then people will recognize that democracy is, is a sham. Okay, well, then they'll start looking for alternatives. If they vote to stay and nothing happens, uh, then, um, well, it's a continuation of the same crap. 
so I know I'm going to be right in the long run. I mean, I have no doubt about that whatsoever. It's just a matter of how long it takes for people to acknowledge it and how much authority I'm going to have after a crisis because I predicted it. Downhill, yeah. Yeah. Stefan, yeah. thank you so much for your show, by the way. It's, it's, it's really, it's great. And I, it's listened to, I'm sure if you see the sort of IP addresses hitting on your website from, from around the world, you'll see a lot from Westminster and Brussels and that. Um, oh, yes. No, I, I think we've, uh, we've done some real good. Yeah, we've done some real good in helping to push this. I'm going to leave everyone with a couple of quotes from Mencken. Um, <laughs> Democracy is a pathetic belief in the collective wisdom of individual ignorance. No one in this world, so far as I know, and I have researched the records for years and employed agents to help me, no one in this world has ever lost money by underestimating the intelligence of the great masses of the plain people, nor has anyone ever lost public office thereby. He also said, um, democracy is the art and science of running the circus from the monkey cage. (laughs) And he also said, the government consists of a gang of men exactly like you and me. They have, taking one with another, no special talent for the business of governments. They have only a talent for getting and holding office. Their principal device to that end is to search out groups who pant and pine for something they can't get and to promise to give it to them. Nine times out of ten, that promise is worth nothing. The tenth time, it is made good by looting A to satisfy B. In other words, government is a broker in a pillage, and every election is sort of an advance auction sale of stolen goods. And the last one, which is from Orwell, the further a society drifts from truth, the more it will hate those who speak it, which is a social justice warrior in a nutshell. All right. Thanks, Alexander. Great chat. And let's move on. Thank you very much. Okay, up next is Michael. Michael wrote in and said, where does the ignorance of society stem from? Why is Generation Y a leading scapegoat for a lazy society? Why isn't the parenting style of the generation before me the people in charge of our failing country, to blame for the wise supposed entitlement. That is from Michael. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to add to the question? Uh, hmm. Well, I, it goes on to, like, uh, I would say parenting styles and how our generation is evolving. And so I believe with each generation, people are getting smaller or not smaller, smarter and smarter. So I believe that old parenting styles, such as spanking and, you know, ridicule and that kind of stuff are, are outdated. It doesn't teach the right way. And, and I just recently read your uh, On Truth, The Tyranny of Illusion, and I agreed a lot with the uh, what you had to say with, you know, about parenting and stuff like that. So that's what I wanted to add on to that. Well, for a lot of generations, um, particularly in the West, a lot of generations are like really immature uh, potters, right? So a potter, you know, gets the clay and puts the clay on the wheel and listens to unchained melody and, you know, spins the wheel and they shape what they shape and they make what they make and then they harden it and they glaze it and they paint it and so on. And they put all this work into shaping. The clay and and producing something. And then what happens is they look at this thing and they say, damn, that's but ugly. That's terrible. I can't, I can't, like what is wrong with that clay? 
I can't believe it. It's terrible. And and somehow they hope that no one's going to notice that they're the potter. Like they distance themselves from what they've created and criticize it as if they had nothing whatsoever to do with its creation. So the elder generation supports or sets up things like the welfare state and government schools and public sector unions and massive national debts and God knows terrible immigration policies or whatever and lie about race differences and ethnic differences and gender differences and just do all the crap that, that creates a really warped environment for children to grow up with and praises single motherhood and, you know... Attacks white males for being white males and, and uh, you know, set up a terrible divorce system, alimony and child support. And, oh, God, it's terrible. So they set up all of this wildly unnatural stuff for children to grow up in. They drug children for failing to pay attention to watching the paint dry of modern government education, which is actually an insult to paint drying, which at least doesn't punish you for not paying attention boys are broken girls and we're gonna drug them and like they just insane stuff insane terrible wretched stuff around a lot in society and then the kids grow up and the kids grow up and, and what happens well they well some these kids they seem strangely apathetic they seem somewhat entitled they say oh well they were raised by government teachers who couldn't be fired and then you complain that the children seem entitled. Dear God, you put people in charge of educating your children who can't be fired and who are not at all responsive to the children. Kids hate this teacher. What can they do? Nothing. Hate a restaurant? You don't go. They don't get your money. Hate the teacher? They get paid. You can't get them fired and your kids have to go in many places. So, they put kids in these terrible situations, these terrible family structures, and they lie. It's not, it's not the terribleness. It's the lying. It's the lying. Single moms suck in general. You know, it's a system that's set up, and I can understand why they do what they do, and there's a lot of irresponsibility in the world, and people don't have the proper signals from society or, or ethics or economics, basic economics. So I get it. But, oh, single moms are heroes, and, and you know, the, the man just left her, and it wasn't her fault, and oh, all right. She had no choice. Couldn't choose. And it's just the lying. You know, people can say, well, yeah, government schools suck. We inherited them. We had to go. And damned if you're going to get away with it. But we're certainly not going to try and oppose it or fight it because, you know, it's a lot of work and <laughs> it's difficult. Okay, then say that. But, then, oh, you know, uh, teachers are heroes and they work so hard for the children and we just want the children to be educated. That's why they're government school. Right. So it's just it's it's not the uh, there's a great. You know, why don't I see if I can look this up? There is a great speech by one of the greatest 20th century playwrights, Tennessee Williams. can't believe only one person noticed that in my recent um, Liberal Hypocrites video. Let me see if I can look it up because it's a great speech. I would love to hear it. Uh, here it is. So this is from Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. This is Brick, who's a young man, who's kind of aimless and a drunk, and his father named Big Daddy. Big Daddy's trying to figure out why Brick drinks. And Brick says, Have you ever heard the word mendacity? And Big Daddy says, Sure. Mendacity is one of them $5 words that cheap politicians throw back and forth at each other. Brick says, You know what it means? Big Daddy says, 
Don't it mean lying and liars? Yes, sir, lying and liars. And Big Daddy says, Has someone been lying to you? Then they get interrupted by a bunch of kids from a relative named Gooper. When they get rid of that interruption, Big Daddy says, Who's been lying to you? Has Margaret been lying to you? Has your wife been lying to you about something, Brick? Not her, says Brick. That wouldn't matter. Then who's been lying to you? And about what? Brick says, Not one single person and no one lie. Big Sad Daddy says, Then what? What then, for Christ's sake? Brick says, The whole, the whole thing. Big Daddy says, Why are you rubbing your head? You got a headache? Brick says, No, I'm I'm trying to concentrate, says Big Daddy, but you can't because your brain's all soaked with liquor. Is that the trouble, wet brain? He snatches the glass from Brick's hand. What do you know about this mendacity thing? Hell, I could write a book on it. Don't you know that I could write a book on it and still not cover the subject? Well, I could. I could write a goddamn book on it and still not cover the subject anywhere near enough. Think of all the lies I got to put up with. Pretenses, ain't that mendacity? Having to pretend stuff you don't think or feel or have any idea of? Having, for instance, to act like I care for Big Mama? I haven't been able to stand the sight, sound, or smell of that woman for 40 years now, even when I screwed her regular as a piston. Pretend to love that son of a bitch of a gooper and his wife May and those five same screeches out there like parrots in a jungle? Jesus! Can't stand to look at him. Church! Bars the bejesus out of me. But I go, I go and sit there and listen to the fool preacher. Clubs, elks, masons, rotary. In spasm of pain, makes him clutch his belly. He sinks into a chair, his voice is softer and hoarser. I've lived with mendacity. Why can't you live with it? Hell, you got to live with it. There's nothing else to live with except mendacity. Is there? And Brick says, yes, sir, yes, sir. There is something else that you can live with. What? Brick lifts his glass. This. Liquor. Brick Daddy says, That's not living, that's dodging away from life. Brick says, I want to dodge away from it. Big Daddy says, And why don't you kill yourself, man? Brick says, I like to drink. So, I mean, it's it's worth seeing the play or, or, or reading the play. But um, mendacity. Mendacity is a word that's very, very powerful in this. And the mendacity is, 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 is the fakeness. It's not, it's not the fact that things are bad. It's that people fake that they're good. And this mendacity is something that the, the young man sort of rails against. And I kind of really, I really sort of understand that. Um, just how annoying and frustrating it is when you live in a society that is is worshiping falsehood and elevating falsehood to to truth and virtue, falsehood and mendacity uh, to to truth and virtue. Uh, if you watch it, there's a very good version with uh, Elizabeth Taylor and Paul Newman that's worth checking out. Um, and uh, while you're at it, while you're at it, um, the Glass Menagerie. With Joanne Woodward 
And John Malkovich is also worth checking out. I think Paul Newman directed that, and uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Anyway, I mean, Tennessee Williams, well, Streetcar Named Desire with the original with Brando. I mean, uh, it's feral and ferocious and powerful. That is, uh, I mean, Tennessee Williams, I'm just obviously a big fan. So, yeah, so the elder generation set up or allow to continue to exist or refuse to fight terrible systems in society that warp the minds and souls of children and then complain that the children just seem X, Y, or Z, like the potter didn't have any hand in the, in the pottery. Why can't we strive to be better than our parents? What, what did they do to not let us progress farther? And well, what do you mean? That, that's, uh, come on, that, there's tough questions. This isn't one of them. I mean, parents... Our parents grew up and, and, and were launched into their careers uh, at a time of huge economic freedom relative to today. Regulations were way lower. Taxes were way lower. The government wasn't hoovering up as much money to, to pay off interest on the national debt. There weren't as many bureaucracies and, and there wasn't uh, just, I mean, the uh, uh, OSHA and, and the EPA, I mean, all, all of the regulatory burdens and, and red tape and so on, uh, our parents, um, they kind of hit the economy without all of that stuff, or at least without as nearly as much of it as there is now. So with debt and interest payments and the government printing money like crazy and inflation, I mean, and, and all of the red tape and taxes, I mean, it's really, really hard to, um, to get ahead. And, you know, there was more of a monoculture. Uh, in the post-war period, I mean, what was it in the early '80s? Four um, percent of America was Hispanic. Now it's seventeen percent. That's expensive, right? To to serve up a whole bunch of government services in in two languages or more, and to have you know questionable compatibilities in certain cultures and so on. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was um, a lot easier to uh, to figure this out. Okay, I I, I get I get that. It was a, it was a lot easier for them because they didn't have all the restrictions that was set in place after the fact. Yeah, have you never um, have you never heard of old economy, Steve? I have not. Okay, okay. Well, so you can go to quickmean dot com slash old economy Steve, and it's a picture of a guy in in the sort of late sixties, early seventies, right? Okay. And uh, at the top it says. Fails out of high school. And underneath it says, gets job, buys house, retires happy. Fails out of high school, gets job, buys house, retires happy. Um, here's another one. Finds entry-level job, requires zero years of experience. Right? Because there, uh, there was a big demand. Receives entry-level position after high school, works up the ladder to CEO. Um. And uh, let's see here. Oh, yeah. He says Gen Y are slackers. He himself did LSD in high school, got diploma, union job, easily supported four kids and a wife who never worked, then retired with a pension. Or he says, uh, when I was in college, my summer job paid the tuition. Yeah, tuition was $400. Um, he, he bought a house in his 20s with a nine-to-five job that didn't require a bachelor's degree. Kids these days have it easy, he says. Um, this, uh, old economy, Steve has it better than his parents and his kids. Um, <laughs> old economy, Steve works one minimum wage hour, buys four gallons of gas. Anyway, uh, it's, uh, 
or just retires. <laughs> it just retires at all. Types with one finger makes six figures. Uh, or what I was saying, complains about the next generation, raise the next generation. Um, or how about this one? Old economy Steve loses job, finds another one on the way home. <laughs> Old economy Steve pays into Social Security, actually receives benefits. He goes to law school and pays his student loans with his very first paycheck. Yeah. And like speaking of the college thing, it's like nowadays it's it, it more sets people apart in my generation if you don't go to college and you go out of, and you make a job right out of high school and then everybody that goes to college and does all these useless degrees that are not going to even benefit them in life like like artsy liberal degrees that like and it seems like everybody condemns like oh being janitors and stuff like you those jobs have to be filled, yet they're putting so much negative karma. Oh, and it's not negative karma, like negative attitudes towards jobs like that because, oh, you have to go to college and get a degree. Well, I, I believe getting a college, a college degree and furthering your education is, you know, is good, but why do it for these degrees that won't even benefit you and you won't even be able to pay off your student loan no you gotta be sensible with your degrees can i give you another old economy steve go for it gets to the airport 10 minutes before departure welcome aboard sir Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at my first job i only made fifteen thousand dollars a year in 1979 that was the equivalent of forty seven thousand dollars ah he had no prior experience, but they took a chance on him. <laughs> there was uh, one job I saw. Uh, it was an entry-level job, but it required, like, seven years of experience. Like, for, like, yeah. a straight-out-of-college job. Like, like, what, how, like, I don't even understand the thought process behind it. There's no logical reasoning behind any of it. And there's, there's parasites and lazy people of all generations, yet... Now our generation gets, you know, there, there's the greater good from berkeley.edu. They, they, they've been called ungrateful, narcissistic, and entitled. But yeah. new research, and it's just like. That's called projection, right? I mean, yeah. if, you're, if, if you're entitled, it means you want things that, that you haven't earned that other people have to pay for. That's called the national debt. I mean, how on earth are the boomers not entitled if they wanted a whole bunch of free stuff and handing the bill to their kids? Here's another one for the last one I'll give. You can do these all day. Old Economy Steve buys car, toaster, vacuum cleaner in 1978. Everything still works. <laughs> anyway, there you go, Peter. Uh, so, um, yeah, I just wanted to uh, mention. So it is, uh, it is a... Uh, it is a challenge uh, for uh, for kids these days. I mean, it is uh, they they you, you were handed both a positive and a negative situation. You know, I think parenting has improved over time, but um, it, it is a big mess. You know, and it's funny because I was thinking about how just the other day, um, 
sort of looking at my own wage history, I, I could sort of get a sense of a feel when it began to peak. And it wasn't because I wasn't learning more or doing better. It's just, and I think it was looking at these waves in the IT field of just the H1B visas or whatever the equivalents are of just people coming in and coming in and coming in. And this is why tech companies tend to be so statist. You know, you think tech companies would be like super Peter Thiel style, thanks, Peter, libertarian. But um, of course, they're really wedded to state power because they want these people to come in and, and displace local workers because local workers uh, will compete. You've got to compete with them for jobs. You get these people tied into their jobs through these visas. They can't quit. They can't really negotiate. It's it's hard. So, I mean, lawyers too. You used to be lawyers. You go and, you know, basically make a lot of money as a lawyer. And now significant numbers of lawyers can't even find work in their old field, even though they got $100,000 in student debt. They're probably never going to be, be able to pay off. And um, the, the extended adolescence, because the baby boomers were like toddlers with the finances of the company, of the country, uh, no one can ever grow up now, right? Which is why you go to school forever. God, I mean, people, I, I was raring to go out in life when I was like 14 or 15. Uh, but now you got to stay in school forever and then you can't move out of your own parents' home because you can't afford your own place. And it's just, just teenage years just they go on and on forever. And that's pretty crippling because, you know, the later you start your life, the fewer kids you have and therefore the more immigrants you need, according to some theories. So, yeah, it's a big giant mess. But, yeah, the boomers, uh, I've, done, I've done a couple of videos on the baby boomers, which people can find on my channel. But, uh, yeah, they've got, um, they've got some mirrors to look into. Hypocrisy. How can you expect somebody to take you seriously when you, oh, don't do this, don't do that, or don't smoke, don't drink, yet they smoke and drink? Well, no, because smoking and, no, smoking, it's, no, that's, that's too nice an analogy because smoking and drinking only affects you, your body, fundamentally, right? Smoking, obviously, a little bit of secondhand or whatever. But these guys just raped the economy dry. Like, they, they, they did not resist the power of the state when it was first beginning to grow. And that's when you really want to do it, right? I mean, you want to push back before it gets entrenched. They, they wanted all this free stuff. They wanted all this virtue signaling. Uh, they, um, and they did not want to pay the bills for what they wanted. And that, to me, is a pretty unforgivable sin uh, as a whole. Now, of course, the honorable thing to do would be to say, well, you know, there's no money in Social Security. It's unfair for the kids to pay it, so we ain't going to take our benefits. But, of course, that's not going to happen. Um, that would be the honorable thing to do. Um, to to boycott that which was pillaging of the younger generation. I mean, there's no money in retirement plans. They're just a Ponzi scheme for the um, um, to to transfer money from younger and poorer people to older and richer people. I mean, it really is uh, repulsive. Um, but you know, because they you know they and you know, hey, it's pretty easy to make money when your house goes up four times in value for no particular reason. Um, and, uh, this is another reason, you know, another reason why people like immigration is it props up the value of housing because when you have a, a below replacement level rate, then what happens is the price of housing is going to collapse. And a lot of people who are older want immigrants to come in to drive up the, 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 the demand for housing, uh, so that they keep their, their, um, values up. I mean, the degree of predation from the boomers on the younger generations is, uh, reprehensible, vampiric and, and unforgivable in my opinion. I uh, appreciate the calls, appreciate the questions. Thanks, everyone, so much for being part of this, the most exciting conversation in the world today and perhaps for all time because there will never be a moment, uh, a challenge, a set of convergences that we can affect as of right now. 
because either the future is going to be something we can build and be proud of, in which case it'll get easier as it goes forward and will never be as tough now, or it's going to get worse, in which case it'll never be as good as it is now. And I think it's going to be the former with your help and support. Freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. You can, of course, follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. And you can, of course, go to youtube.com slash Radio to like, subscribe, and share all the videos, comment on them, and so on. Last but not least, outside of fdrpodcasts.com, last but not least, you can use our affiliate link at fdrurl.com slash Amazon. Thank you, everyone, so much. And uh, we will talk to you again soon. Have yourself a wonderful, wonderful week.